1: Okay, um kids. What's the matter with kids today? <laughs> Some of you may know that song. Um but we hear it all the time, we heard it when we were kids actually. Um Gustavo uh, spoke to uh my team uh about a year ago and it's interesting because in that group, I don't know if you remember this, we had a millennial as a guest. I do who was I think twenty-three years old at the time. And it was interesting how some of the things that Gustavo talks about he could not relate to, Uh, that we could relate to, that he could not relate to. Uh, And you'll see some of that today. So I think you're going to find this to be a um, pretty compelling presentation. Gustavo Grabnitsky, he's also known as Dr. Gustavo, is an organizational consultant and psychologist. He's currently president of Gustavo Grabnitsky, PLLC an organizational consulting firm in Winston – well, actually, Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina, (laughs) on the way to Denver. (laughs) I moved a couple of times in the last 12 months. (laughs) Once the rent comes, you got it. Uh, He specializes in leadership, development, organizational change, and communications, strategic and tactical planning, and executive coaching. He's worked extensively with a broad range of organizations, including Mercedes-Benz, Eli Lilly, Monsanto, KPMG, Deloitte Touche, Starbucks, Wacovia Sharon Williams, Paint, Lazy Boyd National, North Carolina Baptist Medical Center, uh, Cooper Hospital, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, uh, and the New York City Schools. He has also also has extensive management experience, having held the positions of Executive Director of the Adirondack American Counseling Center. Dr. Gustavo is currently authoring a book. That focuses on understanding and managing the millennial generation. So please welcome to Pittsburgh, Dr. Gustavo thank you. Thank you.
2: And thank you for the introduction. Again, um, I'm going to be aiming these for, as targets for today. Um, if by the end of section four we don't hit these, I'm going to pause and make sure that we do hit them all. So I want to make sure all your questions are answered. So I'm going to start with this very first slide because most people. They look up at this slide, and they go to the title first. Then they go down my name. Then they look at my name. Then they look at me. Then they look back at my name, kind of tilt their sideways, and go, what type of name is that? <laughs> so just to give you a little bit of my background, Gradnitsky. my last name is a Russian last name. My paternal grandparents went from Russia to Argentina in the early 1900s. A lot of people don't realize that until 1941, until the United States jumped into World War II, Argentina and the United States were about the same socioeconomic level. Keep in mind that the United States had the Great Depression in 1929. It really didn't recover until it went into World War II. So both people leaving Europe, if, if they were going to North America, it was primarily <coughs> the United States. If they were going to South America, it was primarily Argentina. So my, my paternal grandparents went from Russia to Argentina. My maternal grandparents, one was from Italy, and the other was from Spain. And they went to Argentina around the same period of time, early 1900s. So both my parents were born in Argentina. My brother and I were both born in Argentina. was a Spanish person, which makes me Russian, Italian, Spanish, and Argentine. We're basically a mutt. <laughs> then people ask me, "Your PhD, what's your PhD in? I like to always remind people, please, keep in mind what a PhD really stands for. Piled high and deep. If you have any friends that are physicians, feel free to tell them. MD really stands for Minus Dissertation. It's a great way to make friends and influence people. They'd really love to hear that, I promise. Uh, I went to undergraduate at the University of Rochester, which is in Western New York. I went to graduate school at Hofstra University, which is in Hempstead, New York, about 30 miles outside of New York City. And then there's a period of time I talk a lot about. I spent four years in prison. Working, a psychologist. <laughs> That's a joke, guys. If you're not laughing, you're all in trouble this morning. <laughs> um, for two years, between 1992 and 1994, I worked at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in downtown Manhattan. So anyone that you saw in national or international news, including John Gotti, Samuel Gravano, the original World Trade Center bomber, the one that drove a van into the basement of the building, trying to blow it up, blow up six floors instead, those are the people I was working with then. Then from 94 to 96, I ran an inpatient drug rehab unit in a female correctional institution called FCI Danbury in Danbury, Connecticut. I was responsible for 105 drug addicted, drug addicted inmates with a staff of six. Then from 96 to 2000, I ran, an, I, went, I completed my four year prison bid, went to do traditional mental health in, an, in a rural part of upstate New York called the Lake George region in the Adirondack State Park, that those who might be familiar with it. Uh, I ran an outpatient mental health center with a budget of five million dollars and a staff of six, sixteen. Then in 2000, I moved back to New York City to start an organizational consulting practice around leadership, communication, and organizational change. And that's what I've been doing for the last 12, going 13 years. With the last four to five years focused on two areas: this integrating different generations into the workforce particularly focused on Gen Y, and also the application of emotional intelligence, or EQ, where we know that IQ, or cognitive ability, is 50% genetic, 50% environmental, does not change after you're 18, and it truly only predicts academic performance through 12th grade. We know that EQ is coachable, is trainable, can be learned, and predicts 70 to 90% of your success. IQ 10 to 30%, EQ 70 to 9%. So particularly in business, EQ is much more important than IQ. So there you have my two areas of expertise that I've developed over the last several years. And I do this uh, both for small, medium, and large companies across the country, uh, both Vistage and non-Vistage alike. So there you have my background. I want to start with a very simple statement. If you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail if you fail to prepare you prepare to fail you all know this intuitively because you just didn't come out of high school ready to occupy the seats you're sitting in you're sitting in those seats because of something that's referred to as expertise now expertise is a wonderful thing expertise is what allows us to look outside of a very complex world and determine very quickly and efficiently this is significant this is not the significant this is not the significant this is not That's what expertise does for us. The way that expertise works is this. We develop a pattern of knowledge in our brains and we compare information coming to us from the outside world to that pre-existing pattern of knowledge. If something fits, great. We move on to what's next. The challenge for us is when something doesn't fit to that pre-existing pattern of knowledge, we tend to ignore it or disregard it. It's almost as if our brain says to us, I've been living this long without this information, so it must not be important. Today, I hope to present you with a lot of new information. And I would urge you to consider it two and three times to try and incorporate it into that pattern of knowledge rather than disregard it. In short, I'm asking you to bring to this presentation what I call a beginner's mind. And a beginner's mind is simply one that is open, one that is willing to entertain a variety of possibilities, and one that asks questions. So, I would ask that, this is a small group, I'd like to do this very informally, so I would ask that if I'm presenting a point that doesn't fit to your pattern of expertise, I would ask you please raise your hand, call my name, throw something at me, do something to get my attention so that we can discuss it rather than allow me to plow along in the information. Agree? So we're gonna make this more of a conversation than a presentation, okay? So, having said, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail, I wanna spend just three slides preparing you to take in new information. Now, just so you know, the handouts you have in front of you have the entire content of this slide deck. There are videos in the slide deck that obviously don't make it into the handouts. The prep slides are also not the handouts. So, we're gonna start with a group exercise. This is to show you how quickly I can get your brains to think in a pattern. And here are the rules. I'm going to ask you to either say this word or spell this word. And then I'm going to point out like this. So you'll see me say to you, say the word, point out, and I'll point out. Or I'll say, spell the word, and I'll point out. Your challenge, should you choose to accept it, is number one, follow the correct instruction. Follow the correct instruction. It means you have to listen surprised how many people don't. Number one, follow correct instruction. Number two, respond as quickly as you can after I point. You don't have to point. You just follow the instruction after I point. Number three, respond together in unison as a group. Together in unison as a group. One more caveat here. Not participating is not an option. (laughs) You're a too small group. With this additional caveat, if you've heard this and done this before, Please sit back, because I I would like to give this experience to everyone who hasn't had it, okay? So not participating is not an option with the caveat. If you've heard it, then do sit back. One more time with the rules. Follow the correct instruction. Follow it as quickly as you can after I point. And respond together in unison as a group. (laughs) Any questions? Let's see how you do first. Say the word. So. Good. Faster. So. Wait, I haven't pointed. See? Next. Spell the word. So. Good. Faster. Say the word. So. Spell the word? So. What does a cow drink? No. No, a cow gives milk but drinks water. Thank you for responding. This is called, and if you didn't say it, you were thinking it. And here's why. <laughs> <laughs> Here's why. It takes me about five seconds to literally activate the neural network in your brain. By simply asking to say and spell the word silk, I activate the neural network in your brain of everything we associate with the sound ilk. So when I produce the question, what does a cow, what do we most associate with cows? So we don't even hear the end of the question, drink. That's how our expertise works. It's very fast, it's very efficient, it's very powerful. The challenge is when we want to take a new information, we want to break outside of those patterns of thinking. So the next two slides are to do exactly that. This is a classic example. So some of you may have seen it before, but I will explain why I use it still along the way. First, when you look up this slide, what do you see? Nine dots. Nine dots. What else do you see? Square. Square. Anything else? Show of hands. How many people can look up this slide and see three rows? Can you see three rows? Thank you. How many people can look at this slide and see three columns? Can you see three columns? How many people can look at this slide and see a box? Can you see a box? Thank you. Okay, so, point number one. It's the same slide. Based on how I ask you to focus your attention, you can see on the same slide, three rows, three columns, and a box. That's not only a change of perception, it's referred to as a change in consciousness. Changing your consciousness is not only about how you perceive the world, but is how you construct and put together the world. That's a change in consciousness. So on this slide already, I've had you change your consciousness three times. Now what I'd like you to do, on a blank piece of paper, somewhere on the handout, I'd like you to draw these nine dots and then solve this problem. And I'll give you about a minute to do this. The problem is, once you draw the nine dots, I would like you to draw four straight lines without lifting your pen or pencil, or retracing lines. Draw four straight lines that intersect all the dots. Which means you draw the nine dots and once your pen or pencil touches that paper, you do not lift or you do not go backwards. Four straight lines that intersect all the dots. Some of you may have seen this and remember it. Some of you may have seen it and forgotten it. It is a classic example, but very worth using for a reason I'm about to explain. Some of you may figure it out, some of you may not. I'll give you about 20 more seconds. Okay, please look up. I'm going to start on the upper left-hand dot. And most of us, if we start on that dot, we're going to draw a line that's going to look something like this. And we get to the third dot, and what do we do? Stop and change directions, right? Why do you think we do that? It's part of the pattern that we recognize. One of the reasons I use this example is because it's an example of how our current patterns of thinking can limit or keep us from finding new solutions. Albert Einstein said, a problem cannot be solved on the same level of consciousness at which it was created. To solve a problem, we must change our consciousness i've had to you change your consciousness three times around this problem with three rows three columns in a box to solve this problem we must change our consciousness again and go back to looking at it as nine dots on a slide or nine dots on a page when you give up your patterns of thinking three rows three columns in a box then you can see line one actually needs to look like this line two like this line three and line four. Here is your original box. The only way to solve this problem is to move outside that box, not once, but twice. Changing our consciousness. If we are going to learn how to motivate, how to recruit, how to retain, how to compensate this generation, we must change our consciousness. We must be able to view them differently because they are different from generations that have preceded them changing your consciousness. Now here's the issue with consciousness. Changing your consciousness is a little bit like the old joke, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? It takes only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change? (laughs) I can't change your consciousness for you. Changing your consciousness is an act of will, which means if we go back here to the original problem, I can say, I'm going to draw out these three rows for you on this nine dot problem. Can you see these three rows? You can simply say, no, I don't. Look, I'm going to draw out these three columns. I'm drawing them right now. Can you see these three columns? You can say, I don't get it. Look, I'm drawing out this box. Can you see the box on the nine out problem? You can simply say, no, I don't. Changing your consciousness is an act of will means. Today, I will do my level best to create a path for you to change your consciousness. I will use other people in the room to help you to change your consciousness. But at the end of the day, at the end of the presentation, whether you can see these three rows or not, whether you can see these three columns or not, whether you can see this box or not, it is entirely up to you. Changing your consciousness is an act of will. Last prep slide. I'm going to give you a riddle. Now, if you've heard this riddle, I would ask you to please not call out the answer, because the idea here is to give people an opportunity to break outside of their patterns of thinking. If you solve this riddle, I would ask you also, please don't call out the answer, for the same reason. Give people an opportunity to break outside of their patterns of thinking. So the riddle goes like this. You build a house. The house has four walls. In each wall, there is one window. Every window faces south. The color of the walls are red, blue, green, and yellow. You're standing in the center of your house, you look outside a window, and you see a bear. What color is the bear? First, show them hands. How many people have heard this riddle before? Just a couple, so I'll stick with it. How many people, if you have not heard it, how many people think you figured it out? A couple. I'll go to you next, but I want to say the riddle one more time. You build a house. The house has four walls. In each wall, there is one window. Every window faces south. The color of the walls are red, blue, green, and yellow. You're standing in the center of your house. You look outside a window, and you see a bear. What color is the bear? Show of hand and now, how many people think you figured it out? OK, a couple more. I saw, is it Eric? It's your head. Ed, I saw your hand go up first, so please just tell us the color of the bear. Wow. Very good. Well done. If you have white, you have the right answer. Let me see if I can guide the rest of you to it. Well done, Ed. Mind's eye. I need you to visualize here. You build a house, the house has four walls. It's a simple box. In each wall there is one window. Place a window in each wall. It does not matter the shape, size, or height. Every window faces south. Where is the only place on the planet you can build a house with every window facing south? The North, the North Pole. From the North Pole, everything faces south. So you're at the North Pole, standing in the center of your house. The, the color of the walls are red, blue, green, and yellow. What is that? It's irrelevant, it's irrelevant information. When we manage tasks, when we lead people, do we need to filter out relevant from irrelevant information? all the time. That's what our expertise requires of us. This is called a filtering task. We'll talk about filtering a little bit later on today, which is why I use this riddle. It's a filtering task. So you're standing in the center of your house at the North Pole with red and yellow walls. You look outside a window, you see a bear. What type of bear must it be? Which is? And that's how you solve it. Being able to filter. So there you have your prep slide. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. And this is your first content slide in your handout. First, we're going to talk about understanding generational differences. I think it's important for us all to be on the same page when it comes to generational differences. So we're going to do a brief historical review to talk about what, what generations, how, how, they, how they are formed, what creates generations, the characteristics in the workforce, etc. Then we're going to talk about generalized challenges, some of, some of which we've already touched on. But the point here is, I'd like you to keep in mind, these are broad brushstroke challenges. So, many Gen Ys will have some of these, some will have others. It's not a requirement for them to have all of them. Then we're going to talk about Gen Y strengths, because they do have some. Then we're going to talk about recruiting and retaining Gen Y. This section four is a section i like for you to think about as your organizational section. This is a section where we'll talk about Gen Y magnets, as I referred to earlier, where we'll talk about the five factors that companies are using to recruit and retain this generation successfully. Last section, strategies to better manage Gen Y. This section is an individual section. Section 4 is organizational. Section 5 is individual. How, what you can do individually to better manage and develop relationships with this generation. So first, understanding generational differences. There are three points that I like to make up front in this presentation, and I make them up front for several reasons. Number one is they're important. Number two, important be- points bear repeating, so you will hear me weave them through the entire presentation. So point number one, generations are nothing more than groups of people bracketed by certain years that share common experiences. Those experiences can be world events, national events, regional events, local events, and parenting styles. All those things shape generations, as does technology. Point number one is technology shapes generations. We're going to be talking a great deal about how technology has shaped this generation, so let me give you another point to start with as evidence. For the first time in the history of mankind, this has never happened before. We have four generations in one workforce. Four generations in one workforce, largely due to medical technology at the beginning and at the end of life. In the year 1900, life expectancy for a man was 48 years. For a woman, it was 51. In the year 1930, which interestingly, was the census that was used to pass the Social Security Act of 1935, establishing retirement age at 65. Life expectancy had increased. For a man, it had gone up to 58 years. For a woman, it had gone up to 62. Which means, if you were born in 1930, you were expected to see Social Security. It was created for those people who live beyond their life expectancy. Kind of like now. Kind (laughs) of. In the year 2000, in the year 2000, life expectancy for a man went up to 75.4 for a woman 79.7. That is an increase of 57% for men, 56% for women, 56% for women in just 100 years, because of medical technology at the beginning and end of life. Point number one technology shapes generations point number two we know from psychology that personality is a tendency to behave in a particular way personality is a tendency to behave in a particular way we know also that environment is a much better predictor and controller of behavior than is personality now i can cite you in short point number two is environment trumps personality that's point two environment trumps personality i can cite you chapter and verse of article after article to support that statement but let me give you a real world example instead if you take somebody who's very loud and very boisterous and always talking at the top of their lungs and you walk them into a museum a church or a bank what are they likely to do? Get quiet. They're going to get quiet, right? Have you changed your personality? Change the environment. You change the environment, and the behavior follows. Why do I say this example from? For several reasons. Number one, I'm often called into an organization as a consultant on a crisis basis. So I will inevitably I will go into the organization and begin to start observing some of the behaviors that have created this crisis. And inevitably, in some back corner, I will find some guy named Joe. Joe's been with the organization probably for about 20 years. Joe hasn't been productive for the last 10, but that's another story. Joe's been with the organization for 20 years, and Joe's got all sorts of problem behaviors. And when I ask about those behaviors, the response I most often get is, oh, that's just Joe being Joe, that's his personality. To which I always say, tell me about your corporate culture. The environment in which you work and live is called corporate culture. The environment which your employees work and live is called corporate culture. In this environment, when I say environment trumps personality, what I'm saying is culture trumps personality. Which means if your employees are team-oriented, motivated by goals, and driven by performance, it's because your culture demands it. Conversely, if your employees don't care about teams, don't care about it, don't care about performance, don't care about goals, it's because your culture allows it. Don't allow unacceptable behaviors to exist in your place of work because of personality. Culture trumps personality. Now, this, by the way, is true of every generation. So moving forward, I want to be very clear. We're going to be talking about what are the cultural shifts that we can make in order to recruit and retain this generation. But to be explicitly clear, I am not talking about creating one culture for Gen Y and another culture for everybody else. I'm specifically talking about creating one culture that works for every generation in the workforce. One more point here about culture. We need to understand that culture is very much like a garden left unattended, and a garden will grow weeds and plants you have no interest in growing that will choke out the flowers, fruits and vegetables you do want to grow. But, if you go through your garden and you pick out the weeds and plants that kill the the desirable flowers, it becomes much easier to grow the fruits, the vegetables and the flowers you do want to grow. At this level, you have a tremendous amount of influence over culture. Don't give that up. Don't allow your culture to grow unattended. Culture trumps personality. That's point two. Point number three, we, meaning all of us, in the workforce, prepare the soil, plant the seeds, and pick the fruit of generations that follow us, which means we create the characteristics of generations that follow us in the workforce. Those are the three points. And I will illustrate that last one. I will illustrate through pendulum swings from one generation to another. Those are the three beginning points. So let's talk about the first generation. want to talk about the GI generation. Born 1900 to 1924, these are people who this year are turning 88 years old or older. These are 2010 census figures, so they're new to you. uh, The census just came out last year, so I think you have a previous number. There are 5 million remaining. They were once a large, obviously many of them are now deceased, they were once a larger generation. Here you have some formative events, these are the events they share, which makes them a generation, shared events. I want to draw your attention to this bottom bullet. They're referred to as a civic generation. This term comes from a groundbreaking book published in 1997. The book is called The Fourth Turning. And in it, two historians go back more than 500 years, more than 500 years to document that in that period of time, In Western civilization, we have had four generational types and four eras, which simply cycle. So Shakespeare got it right when he wrote The Tempest. Past is prologue. The only thing we need to do to understand what comes next is to look back. So let's keep in mind, because this is a PowerPoint presentation, we are covering this in a linear format. But this is indeed a cycle, and I have a slide in the deck that will show you it is indeed a cycle. A civic generation is defined as a generation that's born into a period of time that's called an unraveling, when social institutions start coming apart. And they come of age during a period that's called a crisis. What were the crises for this generation? World War I, the Great Depression, World War Two. The thing to keep in mind about this generation is, and civic generations as a whole, civic generations are the adults during the crisis. They are adults, in adult positions of authority, making adult decisions in order to overcome the crisis. That's what makes them a civic generation. Clearly, very trying challenges for this generation. But very interestingly, civic generations tend to give society a tremendous number of leaders. This civic generation in particular gave this country more presidents than any generation before since. Anyone know how many presidents came from this generation? Seven. Seven presidents came from this generation. They were JFK, LBJ, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, George, H. W. All were born in this generation, all the obsidian people. So, not the workforce, but very worthy of mention, because this is the generation that kept Hitler and Mussolini from winning World War II. The world would look very differently had that war been lost. That's why they're called the GI generation because of their role in that war so i say not more the oldest generation currently in the workforce born 25 to 45 which means this year they're turning between 67 and 87. so think about people in your world that you might have whether they're in your family or in place of employment in that age range 67 87. if you look at Genealogical studies are called silent, historical studies are called silent. If you look at employment studies, they're called traditionals. I use the two terms interchangeably, which is why you see them up there. 35 million remaining, again, they were once a larger generation, many of them are now deceased. Here you have some formative events. Note, they share some formative events with the previous civic generation, do they not? What's the difference? It's exactly right. These are the children of World War II and the Great Depression. They were not adults, not positions of authority, not making decisions, simply following decisions that were made for them, which makes them an adaptive generation. An adaptive generation is a generation that's defined as a generation that's born into a period of crisis, and they come of age during a period that's called an economic high. Think the United States post-World War II, World War 245 defines the cusp of this generation. Post World War II, return to GI, return, uh, expansion of middle class, expansion of suburbia, those were all markers of an economic high. That's when they were coming of age. If you know people in this generation, they will often have what's referred to as depression-era linked or depression-era behaviors, such as they may fold up and reuse aluminum foil. They may wash out and reuse what we consider disposable plastic bags. They may let dry and reuse paper towels. Anyone know people who do this? Are they from this generation? Yeah. Depression with behaviors. Okay. What do they look like in the workforce? First, no news is good news. That means you knew you were doing a good job if your boss didn't talk to you. Loyalty, uh, work ethic, first loyalty to the company. This means that many in this generation retired after working 25, 35, or 45 years for one employer. (coughs) One employer their entire career. Not drawing attention to yourself, show up on time, do your job, and don't be the squeaky wheel. Building a legacy means leaving something behind. Which means, when it came time to retire, this was a generation that would actually go to their boss and they would say something like this. You know, boss, I think I got that magic number I have. I think now may be a good time for me to retire. What do you think? It was actually a negotiated process. And if their boss said, you know what, yeah, now's a good time for you to go, they'd go ahead and retire. And if their boss said, can you hold on for another 24 months or so, they'd work another two years. And what did they get for all this loyalty and collaboration? What was the symbol for this generation of having had a successful career? That's exactly right, the gold watch. And they were grateful. Children of the Great Depression simply grateful to get the gold watch after a 25 to 45 year career. They were called silent because they tended to be risk averse, not challenge authority, and not push the edge of the envelope. That's why they were called silent. Next generation. Boomers. 46 to 64. These are people who are turning 48 to 60. I'm sorry. 48 to 66 this year. 68, no, I'm not sorry, I'm not enough. 48 to 66, thank you. 48 to 66, this year. Uh, they're called the baby boom because they represent the baby boom that began post-World War II. The cusps of the generation of the baby boom are defined by the end of World War II, which ended in 45. There's not a boomer alive who was alive during World War II because the cusp is defined by that that end of war. So 46. Closing cusp is defined by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was a, so- a societally shifting event. In those 18 years, look how many people were born in this country. This is the largest generation of any generation before or since. That's why they're called the baby, boom. they conti- baby boomers. They continue to hold a tremendous amount of influence in this country, both politically and financially. And please keep that number in mind, because we're coming back to it in a couple of minutes. 84 keep that in mind. There you have some formative events. They're an idealist generation. An idealist generation is a generation that's born into a period of economic high, post-World War II, 40s, 50s, early 60s, and they come of age during a period of time that's called an awakening. An awakening is a period of time where, I remind you, this is a cycle that's been happening for more than 500 years, An awakening is a period of time when the idealist generation coming of age challenges through protests and rebellion the social institutions created by the previous civic generation. Late 60s, early 70s. Any challenges or protests going on in the U.S.? (laughs) Just a couple, right? Vietnam War protests challenging the government and the military, two institutions that were revered by the previous civic generation that fought World War I. And World War II. Civil rights movement, challenging segregation, which certainly pre-existed that civic generation, but was sustained and maintained by that civic generation. Woodstock, challenging the definition of family, being the house with the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids. That was a civic generation definition, not a boomer generation definition. Keep in mind, boomers were the generation that used to say, don't trust anyone over 30. And then what happened? They turned 30 and went on to join the institutions they used to rail against to have a seller career. More on that in a second. What do it look like in the workforce? Here's your first pendulum swing. We went from no news is good news to we want you to talk to us at least once a year, and we want documentation. The annual review with documentation is a construct of the boomers did not exist for the Silent generation. Work ethic. First and foremost is FaceTime. FaceTime is defined as the boomer belief. If I can't see you at work doing work, then you must not be working. That is a very boomer belief. And I would say to you, if you're a boomer who holds on to that belief, you're not only rubbing Gen Y wrong, you've been rubbing Gen X wrong. You're two generations behind here, so I would urge flexibility around this belief. Loyalty is loyalty to the team. This comes from another pendulum swing. We went from loyalty to the company to loyalty to the team. Best illustration, if you consider companies that have changed CEOs in the last 10 to 20 years, including Boeing xerox kodak hp when one ceo is leaving and a new ceo is coming in is it just the ceo that leaves who else lives entire executive team right why is that because the new ceo coming in realizes i didn't get here alone took an entire team of people to build this culture of success so I'm going to try and take as many of these people with me to recreate this culture of success in the new organization. That's loyalty to the team. Stellar career. I'm going to try not skipping any. Stellar career. Stellar career for boomers is defined by material and financial acquisition, and they have succeeded in spades. This is the wealthiest generation of any generation before or since. This comes from yet another pendulum swing, because boomers came into the workforce, and they said to the silence. that go, watch, that's not enough. We want more. But they went about getting more in a very earnest and honest way, because the other contract brought to the workforce by boomers is referred to as the 70 to 80 hour work week. Silent generation worked primarily 9 to 5. Boomers wanted more, so they started working 70 to 80 hours a week in order to get the second car in the home. The third car in the home. Silent generation was lucky to own one car. The boomers wanted the second home, the third home. Silent generation was lucky to own one. Pendulum swings from one generation to another. Next, Gen Xers. Welcome to the first slacker generation, or so they were thought. They're really not. We'll talk about why that is. First. Uh, 65 to 81, which makes them 31 to 45 this year. Uh, look at the population size. How many boomers? Eighty-four. Eighty-four million boomers. This is a much smaller generation of boomers. Much smaller generation that come to play in another minute. They're to have some formative events. They're a reactive generation. A reactive generation is a generation that's born to a period of time that's called an awakening late 60s and 70s, and they come of age during a period that's called an unraveling. Again, social institutions start coming apart. Look at the closing cusp of this generation. 81, 82. What was going on during that period of time, similar period of time we're in now, maybe coming out of, maybe not? Recession. Exactly right. The last major recession was the early 80s recession. We've had two smaller ones since. The last major one was the early 80s. It was that recession where, for the first time, it became acceptable companies to balance their balance sheets by cutting staff en masse in large number this was such a radical shift and defined the unraveling because many boomers as an example many boomers were recruited using this phrase if you come to work for us you'll have a job for life there's not an extra lie who heard that statement it just wasn't true anymore This was a pendulum swing that happened in a single generation. That statement spoke to the silent generation work ethic of 25 to 45-year employment. The unraveling began because of the recession when they started cutting staff. The employee-employer contract was broken. And with that went away things like fixed benefits, defined benefits, and pensions. All that went away beginning here with this recession. So, in the workforce, what do they look like? Open, uh, regardless of position they want to talk to you, regardless of where you are in the organization. Work ethic. First and foremost is productivity. And this comes from yet another pension frame. Xers came into the workforce, and they said to their employers, if I can do in 40 hours what it takes Joe 70 hours to do, why would you hold it against me? Don't measure my time. Measure my productivity. This comes out of the Microsoft culture. When Microsoft had IBM as its largest client, my, uh, IBM originally was paying Microsoft per line of code, meaning the time it would take them to write a certain number of lines of code. So if Microsoft wrote a program in 120 lines, they'd get paid more if they wrote just in just 30 lines. Microsoft finally pushed back and started saying, if you write in 30 lines, and the program's doing the same thing, why would you pay us any less? It's doing the same thing, it's doing it more quickly, more efficiently, leaving resources for the computer to be doing other things. Don't pay us for our time, pay us for our productivity. And this, by the way, is why they were called Gen X. Boomers didn't know how to manage this productivity-based, boomers were working 70 to 80 hours a week, boomers didn't know how to manage productivity-based performance, so they labeled them as Gen X, as in unknown variable. X is an unknown variable, and the label stuck. That was the rub with boomers. Loyalty is loyalty to the skill set. Another pendulum swing. We've gone from silent loyalty to the company, boomers' loyalty to the team, extras' loyalty to the skill set. This means actors don't want to jump ship necessarily, but they want to make sure that every position you give them, every role they take on, every task they have to do makes them more marketable in the workforce. That's what their concern is. So I, I argue that. 20 years ago, organizations used to have very tall hierarchies, referred to as the corporate ladder. I argue that over the last 20 years, that organizational structure in general, organizational structures have gotten much flatter and much wider. Organizations today are much flatter than they were 20 years ago. Agreed? So I urge people to think of your organization not as a corporate ladder, but as a corporate lattice. Like on the side of a house? And realize that one of the ways you keep this generation in your workforce is by moving them across your corporate lattice. That often does not require a change in position, a change in title, even a change in pay. As long as they feel like you are giving them opportunities to build their skill set to make them marketable in the workforce, they will stay in your organization. That's, move, that's Gen X, and that's moving across your corporate life. It's a little counterintuitive, because people think, oh, if, if I train them, they'll leave. No, For extra, in particular, if you train them, they'll stay. Career goal, work-life balance, again, another pendulum swing. Xers came into the workforce and they said, yeah, um, to boomers, yeah, um, and that stuff you guys got is nice, but we don't want so much of it. We don't need so much of it. We want work-life balance. We want to work to live, not live to work. This was a construct brought into the workforce by Xers because boomers were working seven to eight hours a week, and they wouldn't do it. Quarterly career, again, back to uh, loyalty to skill set. They don't want to jump ship. They just want to make sure that every job they have, builds their skill set and allows them to take that skill set with them so show of hands here how many people are silent anyone here silent boomers xers okay any gen y no okay so gen y and this is in visited ceo groups it's typically vast majority ceo the vast majority majority um, boomers occasionally get some extras, and rarely a Gen Y. So. Um, True to formal, that's what I'm saying. So gen-, uh, gen Ys. Gen Y and Millennials, the two terms are interchangeable. The years are in gold because, depending on what you read, earlier publications about this generation had the years fluctuating between 85, 81 and 85. <coughs> uh, the year is now settled in at 82. The beginning customer settled in at 82. Why? They're called Millennials because they entered into the workforce uh, at age 18 when they graduated high school in the year 2000. 18 minus 2000, 1982. While it's currently 2000, there seems to be some fluctuation right now among historians and it looks like it's going to be from 82 to 2001 because world-changing events then define the cost of generations. And 9-11 was a world-changing event. So currently 82 to 2000, likely to be 82 to 2001. Look at the population size. How many boomers did we have? So herein lies one of the fundamental underpinnings of this presentation. We cannot escape our demographics. We have 84 million boomers who began to turn 65 last year, followed by only 68 million Gen Xers, which means over the next 5 to 15 years, we have 84 million people leaving the workforce, with only 68 million to backfill those positions. Where are we going to make up that gap? That's exactly right. Point number one here, demographically, Gen Y has a very direct line to very rapid career advancement and growth into our organizations. That's point number one. Point number two is, but it's not only about demographics. It's about skill sets. Last year, when unemployment was hovering, always, all all last year, above 9%, there were still companies who were trying to hire people and find people, but they couldn't find people with the right skill sets. They bring a very different skill set, one that we need. Here's the example. Think back to January of 2004. Think back to where you worked. Think back to the technology you had on your desk. I will tell you that in January of 2004, Facebook did not exist, which means a friend was still a noun and not a bird. LinkedIn meant to be handcuffed to a belly chain. (laughs) Skype might have been a typo you made on an app, which was an application. A tweet was a sound a bird made. The cloud was something you looked at from the ground or flew through on a plane. 4G might have been the level you left your car in a parking deck. And LBS did for London Business School. These are eight technologies that have come of age since, in the last eight years since 2004. 2004 was the first year this generation started graduating from college. These are technologies that have come of age while they have been moving into adulthood. They master these technologies, we do not. You'll hear me say and explain a little bit, this is the first generation referred to as technological natives. The rest of us, we're technological immigrants. We need the skill sets that they are bringing to the workforce. So number one is demographics. Number two is skill sets. Number three, look at the generational title. This is the next civic generation. We have completed the cycle. Born into a period of unraveling, coming of age during a period of crisis. What's the crisis? Foreign wars, religious extremism, renewable energy, environment, pick one. This is the generation that's going to overcome, as adults, one or more of these crises. Now, sometimes I'll say that in a room like this and I'll get someone who goes, HA! NO WAY! (laughs) Regardless of how you see them today, changing your consciousness is an act of will. If you are going to work with them successfully, we must be able to change our consciousness. Regardless of what you see their skill sets, today, I'm going with history. This is a cycle that's completed itself for more than 500 years. I'm going with history on this. The most
3: optimistic thing I've seen
0: in months.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's good. But to me, I think it's great that, that we have a generation that can fix the mess we've created. Oh, I, that's awesome. I, I, I do, too. And yeah. I'm very hopeful. I am very hopeful. And, and again, I thank you for that, because a lot of people, a lot of times, I get people at this point is when people start pushing back really hard. Yeah. And I, I, I ask simply to wait on the pushback because I have more information. Nope. Not surprising at all.
3: Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, the first person she, sees, she says,
2: you're the first person I'm going to check."
3: the debt. Yeah. You're the first yeah. person
2: I'm going to ask to do my own obligations. Something I feel honored. Not only that, you I, I can guarantee you one of the things you're doing right, and this is one of the five factors, relationships. I guarantee you you're doing that right.
1: So, I'm glad as I want to do that, is what, to me, is you're missing know, out on
2: You can make, this is going to be a hundred to a thousand things long. Um, I, I'm choosing things that come up statistically high for them and things that really change the environment, not only for them, but, but for us. Like, you used to be able to send your kids to school, grade school, without having to go through a metal detector. Kids used to be able to go to college without having to worry about being, being shot. At. These are events that really have changed the world for them. And if you talk to them, these are top of mind you talking to talk top So yeah, we can all have different. I mean, it, the list can literally be a hundred things long. But, you know, it's it, it just to give you flavor, it just to give you a flavor. What do they look like in the work? Any other comments on that? So let's talk about in the workforce. What do they look like? Communication? Constant. <laughs> What's your favorite form? Text. We'll talk a lot about texting. You're absolutely right. We'll talk no, about. First day. I'm sorry.
3: First day is illegal texting
2: text Oh,
1: is it? It's good to know. I won't
2: be texting a little back to the airport. Work ethic. We heard work ethic as part of the plans this morning. Some people say they have no work ethics. They do indeed. They're just very different. I'll say here again, do not confuse work ethic with work pattern. I'll define it in a second. Work ethic first is relationships. Now, just to let you know, these relationships and purpose, we're going to define them here quickly. We're going to do a deep dive into both of these in Section 4, so this is just for definitional purposes. De- Relationship means they do come to work to make friends, period. They do come to work to make friends. Gallup has been doing a survey for 50 years. The survey is called the Q12. The Q12 is a predictor of employee retention. <laughs> One of the questions on the Q12 used to be, I have a close friend at work. It has recently changed to, I have a best friend at work. Which means, for previous generations, this question question was a predictor of employer retention. I argue that for this generation, it's a determiner of employer retention. They will not stay where they're not engaged, period. And I'm not talking about months to years. Previous generations might wait months to years. I'm talking about days to weeks. They just get up and go. They must be engaged, must be engaged early. Purpose. Purpose is meaning, significance, big picture, cause. Those are all things that define purpose. Meaning, significance, big picture, cause. Which means part of our challenge in the workforce is we need to drive our purpose down to even entry level positions. Entry level positions must be directly tied to our purpose. I'll tell you right now. Purpose for Gen Y is answered by the, these two questions. How does what you're asking them to do change the world or change human experience in the world? That's purpose. Changing the world or changing human experience in the world. Again, we'll do a deep dive into both these in section four. Career to have a parallel career. This is a generation that's growing up. Watching TV, playing, on, playing video games, listening to music, talking on the phone, texting, all at the same time. So it shouldn't surprise you that they think they can be a rock star, a rocket scientist, and a surgeon all at the same time. They think they can develop great careers in power. Blended life. Blended life means, if everything I do has purpose, if everything I do has meaning, then it doesn't matter where I get it done, it just matters that it gets done. It doesn't matter where, it just matters that it gets done. So here's an example of that. You may have a Gen Wire at home at nine o'clock at night, updating their Facebook, as they're apt to be doing, and they may think, I forgot to finish that document, send that email at work. So they will click over to the work email, finish the document, send the email, click back to Facebook, and not think twice about it. You may have a Gen Xer at home and who has the same thought at the same time. They're gonna have to walk up to the computer, boot up their computer, and wait. Log onto the work email, finish the document, send the email, log off the work email, boot down the computer, and they're gonna walk away thinking something like, you know, I'm gonna have a good work life balance today. It's nine o'clock at night and I'm still I'm still working. A boomer might still be at work at nine o'clock at night trying to figure out how to turn on the computer.
0: <laughs>
2: Different generations respond differently to the same circumstances. The point here is to understand a generation and what it's going to look like in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, you must understand their core values. For Gen Y, the core value is relationships and purpose, but it's also blended life. Gen Y doesn't believe in work-life balance. Work-life balance is a Gen X value. Gen Y believes work-life balance is bunk because it requires them to separate work-life from personal life. For them, if everything has meaning. It doesn't matter where, it gets, where I get it done. It just matters that it gets done. Let me expand a little bit more on the work ethic versus work pattern issue. I've had a CEO come up to me and tell me one of his clients had gone to him and told him, you have to stop working your younger employees so hard. Why would a client say that to a CEO? Because the younger employees, the Gen Y employees, are responding to emails at 1 or 2 in the morning. Well, that doesn't mean they're working 24 hours a day. That just happened to be when they're addressing their emails. Don't confuse work ethic with work pattern. Means if you give them the relationship and you give them cause or purpose, you will get all the work you want out of them. Forty hours, sixty hours—it doesn't. The time doesn't matter. It's the goals that matter. It's the purpose that matters. Uh, one more point here. I've looked at Gen Y stuff. I look. Internationally, actually, and there are several countries that have come out with many publications. And where I've looked the United States, the US, Canada, Australia, England, Spain, and Argentina. I've looked for publications coming out of the Middle East, haven't found any. Looked for publications coming out of China, haven't found any. But I will speak anecdotally to this point that while other countries, because the fourth turning specifically looks at Western civilization, while other countries, specifically Spain and Argentina, don't have an aligned silent boomer and the next generation because they had different things going on in those countries, this is the first generation that's beginning to look like a global generation. It's the first generation that's beginning to have global reach. Why? Point number one, technology shapes generations. This is the first generation to have a global technology which is ubiquitous. Specifically, the cell phone media. So, one more point. I said one more. If you are on the cusp of a generation. So for example, I was born in the late 60s, which makes me an early exer. So if you may, be, uh, first let me make the point, if you're born on the cusp of a generation, the cusps are discrete, but the characteristics are not. So you may look like a the generation that precedes you or follows you. So because I'm an early Xer, I'm on the cusp of boomers. So if you look at me and my work style, you may think certain weeks, wow, well, this guy works like a boomer. 78 hours a week. And you'd be right, certain weeks I do, but work-life balance is at my core. So if you take a Gen X who's 10, who's 10 to 12 years younger than I am, work-life balance is going to also be at his or her core, but they're going to look a lot more like Gen Y. Why? Technology shapes generations. depending on when technology came into our lives. Okay? Questions here?
1: Just, just a general one. Baby boomers, you know, we have a desire for the, the house the cars that doesn't the Gen 1 or Gen X company. Mm-hmm. No.
2: Boomers will be. Boomers. Gen Xers are not as wealthy as boomers at the same age. Boomers will be the wealthiest generation. Xers are not are not driven by money the way boomers are. Well,
3: then as a the follow-up. How, how do
2: we develop leaders that are going to take our companies forward? And grow? If, um, if the desire um, because I would argue that money aren't the only money is not the goal. I would argue money's not the goal. Money is a result of good performance, of efficient performance. And when you look at performance and what a company really does with regard to purpose, then it, it, the the R, the return on investment happens to be money. But I think money you, boomers look at money as the goal. Gen wise, look at money as the effect, the result. I was gonna say is that also more of a personal
3: situation? So. Somebody may want success within a business or grow a company for the achievement of it, but not necessarily. I don't need
2: individually that money. Exactly. So, that, that's another example. It's just they are simply X's. This is true of X's and more true of Gen Y's. They simply are not motivated by money the way boomers work.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> I, I would differ just a little bit about it. Just say boomers look at money as a goal. I, I'd say the boomers look at it as the scorecard, not necessarily the goal of the
2: AI, Okay, I'm splitting hairs in any way. You know, and, and maybe we could be talking about, but as, a, as a generation, I don't think it's accidental that they, they are the wealthiest generation of any generation before us. So I don't think that it's accidental that you have a very large number of boomers who, you know, continue to accumulate wealth at you know, I, I you know, I, I try to stay stay out of politics here. There's let's just say statistically, wealthiest generation at their age, no gener mm-hmm. wealthier than any generation that preceded or followed. Mm-hmm. Right. So they were we- they were wealthier in their forties than extras are in their forties mm-hmm. as a generation. Mm-hmm. Extras haven't pursued the dollar the way the way boomers did. They don't they don't use it as a scorecard. Let me go his hand first, then here. Uh, this is
1: We all
3: hear that we're not open for the first time in a generation and decide to live as long as their parents. Does that tie that into kind of this at all? I mean, you know, we all hear it because you we know it's video games instead of baseball. But, but I'm just trying to
2: figure out how that might fit into this. Yeah, we we hear that. I'm not sure that that's true because of medicine. What I can tell you, in a, I'll give this data point now. Um, we're going to talk about challenges. Some of the challenges are really going to bother some people in the room. And, and, and we'll talk about how those challenges came about. Um, specifically the parenting styles of the era. Well, I'll just say that, the parenting styles of the era. But while the parenting styles of the era have given us ch- these challenges in the business world, uh, the CDC has been doing a study for just over 30 years now. It's a long longitudinal study that looks at 50 at-risk youth behaviors, 50 at-risk things like early incarceration, teenage pregnancy, juvenile delinquency, et cetera, truancy. Of those 50 at-risk youth behaviors, for this generation, 49 of them have gone down. Only one has gone up, obesity. So, yes, it does tie in. But the larger point, I think, is when 49 out of the 50 at-risk youth behaviors is going down, there's something going very right for society. So, I think it does tie in. I think, I, I don't, we don't know what that's going to, the long-term effects of obesity we know are negative, we just don't know if that's going to change or not. I oh, over here. I you have to support 1 of the points.
1: I heard a guy talking recently yeah. about uh, trying to break the boomers in half, calling the second half of the
3: boomer generation, yeah. and the Jonesers, and the whole thing was keeping up with the Joneses and how yeah. much they were
0: financially.
3: Yeah, right? if
2: you look at boomers, and you're absolutely he, uh, – he's right, you're absolutely right, and we don't have time to get into this, Boomers are really two generations in one. There are early boomers and late boomers, split at 54. And so if you look at from the, how they protested to the drugs that they, they did, they were completely different. But they were simply cool because of the, because of the events that, that surrounded them. Again, the, the, the cusping the end of World War II and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But yes, if you, get, if you do a deep dive into the boomer um, generation, you can split them into two. Uh, I wanted
1: to
3: say, in Trump's, Trump's personality.
2: Yeah?
1: Why is it if the uh, millennial, the Gen Y are coming to work for the boomers, and I use that phrase, work for Why does it feel that the boomers to adapt to the
2: Gen Y? 84 million boomers, 68 million Gen Xers, 79 million Gen Ys. Demographics. I, I, that, that's point of view. Demographically, boomers are going to retire. And the fact is that they have skill sets that we need in order to continue to be competitive. So if you want to bring them in, you're going to have to adapt. And if you don't adapt, you just won't get them, or if you get them, they won't stay. So you create a revolving door, which is one of the greatest expenses for companies, large and small. is recruiting, retaining, recruiting, training, losing, recruiting, training, losing. That's why. That's why. Yes, culture does trump personality, but at this point, and again, so it's like demographics, uh, um, uh, skill set—they're the next civic generation. So yes, and 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 I'll talk more about it towards the end. But I argue we need to meet, we need to meet them where they are. Then we can get them to change. But they're not going to change coming to our workforce. Why? They got numbers on their side. We need them. We need them. Other questions, comments?
1: Yeah, just one more. Sure. I'm having a little trouble reconciling a couple of points you made. Sure. One that in the workplace relationships are a great value for do life,
3: mm-hmm. Yet FaceTime is considered a big turnoff. Why is that?
2: Because FaceTime constricts blended life. FaceTime means you must be time. Well, first, uh, FaceTime says you, if you're not doing work, if you're not at work doing work, if I can't see you doing work at work, then you must not be working. Oh, that- well, that's what you mean by FaceTime. Yes. It's
3: not, uh, the having the meeting. And correct.
2: A yeah. See, they, they do, yes. Okay, so I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm not saying. Yeah. FaceTime means is the boomer belief, okay. if I can't see you work, doing work, then you're not working. That's FaceTime. Yeah. It's the yeah. requirement to be there. I got you. I'm just using it to describe yeah. a personal meeting with someone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't see that they devalue that. I agree. Yeah. They they yeah. do want face. They just want they want it as a meeting, right. and they need less of it than we do. Yeah. As a rule, yeah. they need less of it. But yes, I agree. They do want it. John?
3: I'm to, increase awareness
1: of boomers. The,
2: to boomers I moving in this, boomers in this direction? Yeah, I, I think it is happening for two reasons. Number one is I think boomers are real I've begun to realize money's and everything, money's not the best scorecard. Right. Um, and number two is, I, I see some flexibility in boomers now realizing, okay, we need to move to them first. I, I, that's what I see. Those that I'm working with. Oh, I, oh, we, we, we will. Give me a second. We'll, will we'll, uh, we'll. So, do we need to take a break? Can, can I continue? Uh, I'd like to can you, can you go a little further. I know. People, I, I, I don't have a problem with people getting up. I just want, I want to make sure that I just want to see for another maybe uh, ten or fifteen. Good. Okay. So. Okay, so I'm going to continue if there are any additional questions here. Here's a slide that shows you it is in E-A cycle. The right columns are the generations we just covered. The next column, from the second column, from the right are the generation types. The idea here is this, generation, it's not only the lateral that matters, it's the diagonal. The lateral is when they are born, the diagonal is when they come of age. So a civic generation is born into a period of time, when they come of age during a period of crisis. If you have a of people with children who are 12 years old or younger, they're currently being called Gen Z, that name is likely to change. Um, it's not going to stick. We don't, these characterizations generally come about when generations enter into the workforce, they're a good six to eight years from that, so we don't think about them other than, has it fallen origin. rich in, the Civil War changed it a little bit. There were a couple of major events that changed it, but generally, yes. yes. Generally, it will follow the yeah, Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because the selfish ones screw up the world, and the uh, the, the have to fix it. Well, and, and I'll tell you, the way there are two generations... Let me finish one point, let me, let me come back to this yes. The The next generation is going to be an adaptive generation. How do we you know? Because... They are being born to a period of crisis, and they will come of age during a period of economic high. I don't know if the economic high or the crisis. When the crisis is overcome, an economic high follows. To your point, if you look at the history, there are two generation, two generational types which society turns. Meaning one lays, recreates society, one dest- destroys those institutions. The one the creators, are the civic, The changers are the idealists and get the active and the reactive following. Look, I'm an expert. I'm an -er. expert. I'm in the reactive generation. It's just about realizing I'm somebody who is, you know, I will try and influence society the way I can, but the generations that really change society around which society pivots, adapt, um, civic, and and ideas. So, interestingly, go ahead.
0: I was
3: going to say, in this group and other things that i have been.
2: That's something about things that boomers and Gen Y in common. That's exactly right. There's values driven resonance That's very true. With the caveat, if you were and I, I, I found that boomers and Gen Ys can work very well together. With this caveat, if you are too rigid around FaceTime, meaning time at work, if you are rigid around FaceTime, you lose them. But if they are both values-driven, yes, they can work very well together.
3: Are there certain uh, generations that are like? Pouring
2: gasoline on fire whenever they're matched up, like say boomers versus yeah. Fire. Um, I I I don't, I don't believe it's a generational thing. I believe it's a stylistic thing. Okay. So the, the issue that I have found greatest that creates gasoline on fire, um, greatest obstacle is flexibility. So for boomers, if you are flexible, if you are too inflexible around FaceTime, you're going to drive away Gen large. For Xers, Xers are about being pragmatic. X about being pragmatic, so, and, and meeting goals. So X want what work-life balance. and They want their relationships to be at home. So X is about being flexible around the relationship. X don't want to build the type of relationships that Gen Ys may want or need. That's the flexibility there. So it's really about uh, that. Uh, point here, I want to make you that here, this generation, G.I. generation, gave this country seven presidents. How many came in the South generation? How many presidents came the South generation? It's an interesting contrast. Seven votes the GI, zero from South. Four people ran: Mondale, Dukakis, Kerry, McCain. We've had three boomer presidents so far: uh, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama. we is just getting into the age range of the candidate. So, uh, I told you why GI is called GI. The war. Silence called silent. Now push the edge of the envelope. Boomers call boomers, the baby boom. Actually, call extra, the unknown variable. Why is Gen Y called Gen Y? Because every generation rebels in one of four ways. One of four ways. Music, language, clothing, hair. That's a generation rebel. Music, language, clothing, hair. Why is Gen Y called Gen Y? Because of this.
0: <laughs>
2: That's not really why they're called Gen Y. But clothing is their form of rebellion. This does sort of fit uh in 2006 george W. bush had the women's national volleyball team to the white house for a photo op 20 women impeccably dressed dresses shoes skirts blouses 19 of the 20 on their feet were wearing what flip flops flip flops in the white house a formal form photo op. absolutely flip flops of the truth what's it I said before, they all
3: wear them. oh yeah what I like, is
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So clothing is a form of of rebellion. Okay. So uh, let's talk about Gen y at work. This is what will do. Do the second floor. This is a data point. Here's where I'm gonna to start to push you a little bit. Remember, changing your consciousness and active will. It's my job to create a path for you to change to change that uh, change that consciousness. This is a data point. In 2007. Of 95% of Gen Ys who found a job in their preferred field, 82% left within two years or less. 80. For those of you that think, oh, that's everyone in their 20s, they're just like any other generation in their 20s. For Xers and Boomers, it's never hit 50%. So they're qualitatively and quantitatively different.
1: How many left their first job in the first mean first real job?
2: Yeah, first. Post college.
3: Yeah.
2: And here, here it's a, here it's 82%. So, as potential employers, do you want to hire people like this? Old thinking, I want to, let let old thinking versus new thinking, old thinking. Do you want to hire people like this? Statistically, No, No. why is that? Well, I mean, the cost of training, like I said, at the outset, it's, you know, it's, if, it, if, it, if that stayed true, that would tell you. Right, that's the number one, that's, it's a huge expense for companies large and small. Does it beg a question? What's the question? Why? Why do they leave? Let me play this video for you as to why they leave.
3: Um, if I want to leave that job, it's because the boss. <laughs> if the boss is very bad. Bad
1: boss, bad conditions, you know, I want to be safe at work. Uh, the boss, if the boss pisses me off, or
3: if I don't like the job anymore, or yeah, I lost interest. Not being respected, um, not feeling like there's a, a path. Um, for, you know, greater improvement in what I'm doing. Limitation to your job, like you can't actually go out of your job and actually do something extra. Just feeling like you just need to move on, maybe a fresh start, a new problem, new goal to be set.
0: My
1: colleague. And if I don't have good people working around me, then I'll definitely leave, sir.
2: You heard it four times first. The boss, the boss, the boss, the boss. I've literally done hundreds of exit interviews with this generation, and it's usually number one. If it's not, it's always the top three. The reason they leave is boss. So the number one relationship that needs to be engaging to them is the boss. So if you have a revolving door with this generation, you need to look at the boss. Now the good news is if they don't report to you, you're not the boss. The boss is the direct supervisor. That's the number one relationship. Now I'm not suggesting you need to fire that person, but they need training in how to engage this generation. And the key here is a lot of people say for previous generations, oh people don't leave companies, people leave bosses. But the difference is with previous generations, they may hold on for months to years, hoping that they'll get transferred, the boss get transferred, something will change. This generation will not wait days to <coughs> weeks. They just go.
3: Is this 80% paper off when on the close? Do you hear more people say? I'm just
2: glad We'll talk about that. But the short answer, is, I'll answer your question as no, and I'll provide some data that shows you that. Okay. Um, this is a projection. And here's what I want to get to do thinking, a projection. And uh, we heard this understated earlier. Department of Labor projects that by age 32, that's just two years from now, the earliest, the oldest are 30, by age 32, they will have on average eight jobs, averaging a year and a half each. We already talked about old thinking. Old thinking is don't hire them. What might some new thinking, remember, changing your consciousness. What might some new thinking be around this data company?
1: Most out in a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> That's one point. Say again?
2: Within my company. What can I do to challenge them every year and a half? Very good. More broadly What can we do to change this data point? What do we need to do to create a culture in which they'll stay? I argue old thinking used to be when we had a position to fill, we need to find the right person to fill that position. I argue that today, when we have a position to fill, we need to be the right person in order to fill the position. Being the right person means having the right person in place, the right supervisor, having the right culture, and being able to build that relationship. That's being the right person. Here's a quick video. Again, to nudge you a little bit more. I'm going to play this video, we'll talk about it on the other side.
1: We're not going to settle, because we saw our parents settle. And we have options. But we can keep hopping jobs. No longer
3: is it bad to have four jobs on your resume in a year, whereas for our parents, or even Gen
1: X, that was terrible. But that's the new reality for us. And we're going to keep adapting and switching and trying new things.
2: Show hands. How many people here, if you had a job open today and you got a resume across your desk and had four four jobs in a year, six jobs in a year and a half, how many people would be like, no way I'm bringing this person in for an interview? That is traditional thinking, and I completely understand it. My job here is to try and change your consciousness. So here's the example. When I first went to prison... In 1992, when I went to work with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, the Department of Justice had a whole school of hiring criteria, some of which were automatically exclusionary. One of those was, which means if you violate it, you're out. One of those was, if you had smoked marijuana in the prior seven years, you were out. You could not be employed. You could not have smoked marijuana in the prior seven years. That was 1992. In 2000, that criterion changed to one year. What happened? Was there some article that came out says years two through seven don't matter? Why did a very large employer across this country change the hiring criteria? That's exact. Exa- shrinking employment pool. The pot, the, the pot smoking had become so prevalent in college that they realized, if we keep the same criteria, we're not going to be able to hire anyone until after they're 30. And at that point, they're on to different careers. So maybe we should change our criteria. Here's my point. If a very large employer across the country changes criteria based on the employment pool, shouldn't we? This is commonplace. If you don't see it as commonplace, you haven't seen it enough. I'm saying this is commonplace. And what I'm also saying is I've helped hire dozens of Gen Ys just like this. And you put them at the right boss, and you put them in the right culture, and they don't leave. We, we just learned that the number one reason they leave their job is what? Uh, their boss. If the number one job, if the number one reason they leave their job is their boss, is there anything you can decipher, make, glean from a resume that will tell you anything clear about the relationship they had with their previous boss? I'm sorry? Right, or they, or, or, but what does that say about the relationship? Right, what they perceive is bad. But does it tell you anything specifically about that relationship other than it was bad? They didn't really it. It wasn't really right. Do you know why? Based on a resume. Do you know why they didn't connect with their boss based on a resume? No. Where did you find that out? Yeah. Interview. Yeah. That's my point. My point here is don't allow the number of jobs on a resume to scare you from an interview. If they have the skills you think you need or believe they can acquire the skills you need, bring them in and talk to them, spend the hour, and ask the important contextual questions like, what did work with you in your previous boss? What didn't work with you in your previous boss? With the caveat, if they are boss bashing, it's still a red flag. You want them to speak responsibly and respectfully of their previous boss. And then you ask, what are the characteristics that would work with you in a future boss? What type of boss are you looking for? They will be able to answer those questions in an eloquent way that boomers never could. Why is that? Boomers never thought about their boss, they just thought about the job. Gen wise that's all they think about. They'll tell you, I'm going to interview a potential boss. That's how they view job interviews. So again, key point here is don't allow a number of jobs to scare you in a resume. And here's another pendulum swing for you. I recently worked with a 49-year-old, which makes him a late boomer. 49-year-old boomer who had been with the same company for 26 years, showing progress, pr- progressive responsibility the entire time. He came in at, at entry level. He worked his way up to COO reporting to directly to the CEO. <coughs> High-powered guy making a good living. Company gets bought. CEO gets a package. CEO gets a hand wave. So it goes out to recruiters. This is a guy with 26 years of re- experience in management for the last several years. Goes out to recruiters. He goes to one recruiter, second, third, fourth. All four recruiters tell him the same thing. You are unemployable. You have been with the same company for too long, which means the interpretation is you don't have the flexibility to work in another culture. What are his options? He has to start a consulting firm to start building relationships in order to work with other organizations, and either keep that going, or engaged in that way. But he's unemployable because of 26 years with a single organization. That's, that's the shit. Kind of uh, uh, hmm. I agree. the interview about, you know, I, have, I, 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 my point is these are recruiters who are saying yeah, that. So, right. but I absolutely agree with you. It's the same, it's the same thing. But that's the reality, that, that's the reality. That's what's going on. What you're saying is, uh,
3: is that the, 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 environment has changed. Radical. Uh, you know, maybe, for the person who's supposedly there to be right, for his generation now, seeing in the marketplace of hiring, the things
2: have flipped and, other, and too
3: long, long and That's exactly what I'm
2: saying. So does that mean my desire to keep my Gen Ys is silly because in doing so, I'm destroying the careers? No. No. Um, I, I don't believe so because there's. I think there's only um, I've seen, I mean, Gen Ys are turning 30. I've had Gen Ys in the same place for six, seven years. So I think that if you can show, or for them, I think the career path is going to be different for them, number one. They generally have other things going on as well. Um, and, and I would let them choose whether they stay or go. But you can keep them, if you continue, like Gen Xers, if you continue to move them across corporate lattice, I think they'll say uh, You had one question here. Let me come back here. You had your, your hand up. Yeah. Um, we need to define friendship because I think bre- friendship is a very heterogeneous um, term and section 4 we'll define it but what I would to, to, to clarify now I would say there's an expectation that the boss has a personal interest in them so not that the boss goes drinking with them but that there is an, indeed a personal interest in them that's the expectation and that's what builds the relationship over here and then over, over here.
3: So we have our firm a number of performance leaders. They have have people that uh, they're responsible for. So if people leave bosses every year and a half, would it make sense to actually rotate performance leaders as opposed to saying you're under
2: there? Well, I, I would say you don't have – I don't think – the year and a half is projection. Right. So I don't think that's a done deal, and, and my experience is that's been a, you can change that. In the, with the companies that I've worked with, we've been able to change that. So the year and a half has extended well beyond the two-year, even the two-year mark. So if you have an organization that – it is a choice, obviously, to um, build – structure your organization for turn every, two, every year and a half to two years. For most people, that's still very costly. So it, it, you know I'm not here to tell you what, there's no i don't believe there's one, one such a thing as a a good culture and a bad culture. it depends on what your industry is. I would say number one, if it's a small office, I would, I would hook them up with a mentor. Have one of those people begin, be a mentor and have them meet before they even go to work. I mean that would be a, a quick suggestion. Um, and mentoring and, and means, you know, again, it has to be someone who's going to engage them on a personal level. I mean, what's, and we'll talk more about that, but what's going on outside of work? But that would be, you know, a quick way to do it. Engaging them with a mentor even before day one, before they walk through the door, so they're not walking into an unknown environment.
1: Across Gen Y are you seeing, you know, you're going to have engineers coming out and musicians coming out I mean, Is there are a different sense of, of uh, obligation to employment if you're, say, a chemical engineer versus someone? Not, not, not in my experience.
2: Whether it's engineers, they have the same thing, Vendies, PhDs, engineers, attorneys, across the board. One more than I Succession, go ahead. Succession Our company is dominated by.
1: excerpt Extra and thinking
2: the 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 I, I absolutely agree. So I absolutely agree. Um, let me let me uh, let me come back to that in section four, because section four will allow us to, to, to talk specifically to that. Okay, complex question, good question, I agree with that, that's why I, I use the demographics I use. Okay, so, um, talk about the economy, this was a question earlier. These booklets get printed monthly, so these numbers are not in your booklets. If you want them, you'll have to uh, take them down, because these numbers change in the month. Or the month. Um, January unemployment, that is not out yet, 8.3%. Look at January unemployment, more than twice the national average. Does that change job-hopping behavior? Not so much. J Ward remains up we. Thanks to mom and dad. The, the economic problem in the past four years has made it tough for younger workers trying to often get a good job, but that, a boy number of parents don't really expect their 20 something to be financially self-sufficient. Where do these numbers play themselves out? In the census data. In 1970, there were 7.3% of the population in 1970 were adult children living at home. 7.3 in 1970. 7.3 in uh, adult children at home. In 2007, before the recession, that number was 15.7. Post recession, 2010, 17.2. What did it say about you in 1970 if you're an adult child living at home? Loser. Loser! Yeah. No, yeah. That's what it said. What did it say about you today if you're an adult child living at home? You're smart. You're saving money. This was a pendulum swing that happened in a single generation. Because for Gen Xers, this was called failure to launch a boomerang kids. It was not acceptable for Gen Xers to live at home. It's perfectly acceptable for Gen Y. So, to, to really drive the point home, generationally, statistically, what generation is the parent of Gen Y? Boomers. That's exactly right. Statistically, boomers are the generation that parent Gen Y. Boomers, Are the generation whose parents grew up, as boomers as children had their parents saying to them, What do you think you're special? What do you think? You're different? What do you think? You're not like anybody else? And as parents, those boomers turned to their general Y kids and said, You're special. You're different. You're not like anybody else. Boomers turned 18, and their parents said to them, congratulations, we love you. Today, you turned 18. Get a job, join the military, go to school, but get out. Those same boomers, as parents all turn to, turn to their Gen kids and they all say the same thing. I'll start it and let you finish it because I'm sure you've heard it, if not said it. They all tell their kids, don't follow the money, do what makes you And they do every minute of every day pendulum swings from one generation to another. This is a good time to take a break, so can we take 10 minutes? Let's see, we only have a limited, let's see 15. 15, okay, 15
0: minutes?
2: 10-15. 10-15. Jumping into challenges. The largest challenge, this is the largest complaint I hear. We heard a little bit this morning uh, around, this is about long-range planning. The challenge of independence. Independence means they have difficulty figuring out what's the next step. How do I solve this problem? What's the next best step? How do I figure this out? Several reasons for that. The first, I argue, is technological sound. Why is that? I I said this is the first generation of technological natives. The rest of us, we're technological immigrants. That is because in 1975, the Apollo 15 mission took with it to the moon this vehicle. This vehicle is called the Lunar Rover. It's basically a doom buggy for the surface of the Moon. On the back of the Rover, there is a battery pack, which holds the electron, holds the electricity, and a computer chip, which is responsible for distributing that electricity to power the wheels. This was 1975. This generation began in 1982, seven years later. Seven years later, this generation blew up with computer chips more powerful than the chip that was used on the Lunar Rover In their cribs, (laughs) these toys that you bought them—if if if you press a button and the toy produces light and sound—these toys have computer chips more powerful than the chip that was used on the lunar rover. Now that may seem innocuous enough, but the truth is that this has turned social learning on its head. For hundreds of years, if you wanted to become a plumber, a carpenter, or learn uh, 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 any type of tradesman, where would you go? Apprenticeship, right? Or or trade school or apprenticeship. And you would learn from somebody who was older or younger than you. For hundreds of years, social learning happened. Older teaching younger. Social learning has now been turned on its head means for this generation, and this is the first generation who, who, for the first time, you have younger teaching older. If any one of us in this room goes out to buy a new smartphone, where are we going to go learn how to use it? (laughs) It's either our children or the Apple Store, which is populated by Gen Y. First generation have adults going to them for anything. That has turned social learning on its head. And that, one of the we didn't hear it this morning, but one of the things I hear often is they feel entitled. That's just one of the reasons why. They know they have skills that we need. So depending on our approach, we can perceive them as entitled. Perpetual connected. Constantly tethered to parents, peers, and friends. What are you doing right now? What are you doing two minutes from now? Let me tell you what I did two minutes ago. We're constantly texting parents, peers, and friends. Now again, that may seem innocuous enough, but the truth is this is the application of a new technology, cell phone, for an old behavior connecting connecting, with an unintended consequence, lack of independent thinking. Here's why. In 2005, there was a journal article that was published in the Journal of of Neuroscience that basically said this. Uh, Excuse me. Uh, we'd like to correct something we got wrong. Yeah, we used to think that the prefrontal lobe of the brain, the part of the brain that sits up here and is responsible for planning and decision-making, we used to think the prefrontal lobe of the brain was fully developed by the time you're 12 or 13. We were way off. It's not fully developed by the time you're 24 or 25. So you tell me, what would happen if you take a perfectly healthy 12 or 13-year-old and you sit him in a wheelchair and for the next... 12 to 13 years, you simply wheel them around, only occasionally requiring them to stand up and reach for something using their legs. How well will they be able to use your legs at 24, 25? Not well. Not well. Why is that? Atrophy. Atrophy. That's exactly right. The brain is just like our muscles. We develop and we keep what we use. At a critical developmental period of time for the frontal lobe, where previous generations had to do what I call make micro decisions. Micro decisions look like this. Let's see, if it's 5.30 now and I'm at a friend's house and I have to be home by 6 o'clock or get in trouble, that means it's 5.30 now, I have to catch a 5.40 bus to be off the bus by 5.40, be home by 5.55, wash my hands, be sitting at 6 o'clock, and life is good because no one gets in trouble. That's all micro-planning and deciding. This generation just texts and asks for more time. (coughs) And they get it. We have robbed them unintentionally. We have robbed them of opportunities to plan and decide on a micro-level where previous generations had to do I'm um, immediate gratification. I love Google, but when you put it on every smartphone, we need to know less. Everything becomes a reference point, which leads to LFT, which stands for Low Frustration Tolerance. This is a generation that has not learned how to deal with adverse emotion, particularly frustration and conflict. They simply haven't learned. That's part of the challenge. Finally, the advent of helicopter parents. How many people here have heard the term helicopter parents before? About half you. Helicopter parents are parents who hover over their children long after it could possibly be helpful. What does that look like? The helicopter parent is a parent who will go to college with their children to register that child for classes. The helicopter parent, this year, true story, this year I had a I have a friend, I have a friend who is a college president. This year had a parent go up to him, a mother go up to him and say, after orientation, excuse me. How late can I stay in the dorm with my daughter? So, of course, his response was, probably till it gets dark. And her response was, what do you mean I can't stay there the whole week? She was planning on staying in the dorm with her daughter the entire week. What does that look like in the workforce? The health doctor parent is the parent who will send you Johnny's resume rather than have Johnny send the resume himself. The helicopter parent is the parent who will come to the interview with Johnny to make sure your place of work is good enough for Johnny. The helicopter parent is the parent who, who should you have to discipline Johnny, will call you 15 minutes later and tell you what's wrong with that supervisor. Johnny's a great employee. <laughs> helicopter parent is the parent who goes overboard to help their colleagues get a job, some applying for the positions of the adult child, sticking their nose in salary negotiations. Anyone have any one of these or similar experiences? This is going on now. If you haven't seen it, you're fortunate. It's going on across the board. It's going on across the board. Uh, I'm going to skip this one for a bit. Uh, we don't have any, right. I'm just, I mean, Those are just two quick videos that I don't watch anymore, but we don't have Gen 1, so. mm-hmm. um, Work ethic. I said earlier, do not confuse work ethic with work pattern. If you give them a relationship and call, they will work to complete what it is you need them to do. Uh, they are outspoken which means you are entitled to their opinion. (laughs) Whether you want it or not, whether it's informed or not, whether it's listened or not. More interested in lifestyle than overtime, this is when you begin to see a global feel for this. I've done consulting for a company that's been manufacturing in China for more than 20 years. 20 years ago, if you didn't give a Chinese employee 72 hours a week, they'd quit. Today, try and get them to work more than 40 hours. It's the same thing that's going on here. Here it's you want me to you want me to work overtime now? Like right now? Like now, right now? I'm going skiing! My friends are going skiing, I gotta go. And they go. Unbound by authority, they view authority differently. Here's a quick video as to why.
0: You will submit yourself to the authority, but you give the
3: sense immediately that we ain't the boss of you. And boomers recognize that the boss is the boss so what's that all about
0: well i think the difference is now um, the boomers they let their job define them a lot so that's all they do or now
2: we do so many other things we have so many choices my job doesn't define who i am that is blended life we do so many other things we have so many other choices my job doesn't define who i am and that is why they view authority differently. he says earlier Boomers, they let their jobs define them lot. Of course they did. They were working 70 to 80 hours a week. They weren't doing anything else. Authority meant something very different to boomers for that reason. Blended life is why they do authority. Realistic expectations. Didn't hear it earlier, but this is a common concern. This is about, you know, they come out of college, oh yeah, my first job will be on the a year. They're not aligned with the real workforce yet. There are several reasons for that. They do want more, but I argue that the primary reason is because of the parenting style of the era. Let's keep in mind, parenting shapes generations as well. The parenting style of the era was referred to as the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement told parents, ooh, don't tell your child anything negative. But the way it was applied was, don't tell your child anything accurate. (laughs) So we've grown up with a generation of kids playing sports where... They don't keep score, there are no winners and losers, and everybody gets a trophy just for participating. That is reward for effort without regard to outcome. This is why, bottom bullet, they have a disconnect between effort and outcome. They've been rewarded for effort without regard to outcome because of the parenting style. We know in the business world, our effort is is determined by the desired outcome. This is a connection that we have to teach them questions there quick video
1: why do you think that you can work places for a couple months and then get a vacation and unpaid
0: you don't care if you get paid what's up with that i don't understand it because you
3: right on like ftv and things the media and magazines and you see Lindsay Lohan who's 19 and she makes this amount of money and she spends the weekends in Sandra Paye
0: and then you have Puffy who's 35
3: <laughs> who's a multi-millionaire and you have all those are, are heroes so the idea of working 10 years at a mediocre job to possibly have Three or four weeks of vacation is not, everything that we've ever experienced in terms of growing up has been microwavable, and what we're striving for is to be millionaires and fantastic successful by the age of 40.
0: 30.
3: You know?
2: (laughs) Some nervous laughter there, but several things come out of this video. Number one, leave without pay is now a benefit. If you're not using it, you're missing out on opportunities. Boomer's would never take time off without getting paid for it. Gen wise will do it all day long because of blended life. You can't have blended life without time outside of work. That time doesn't necessarily have to be paid. Leave without pay is now a benefit. That's point number one. If you're not using it, you're missing out on opportunities. Point number two. Lindsay Lohan spends her weekends in Sancho pay. Well, she also spends some weekends in jail, so let's just set her aside for a second. Puppy. Sean P. Diddy Rap star in his own right. He's got a company that does music production, alcohol, clothing, television. Guy's got five or six different companies, all with a rock-solid brand. We all know there is no way to achieve that level of success or outcome without an extraordinary amount of effort. They look at the outcome without understanding the effort. Separation between effort and outcome. For those who don't know, puppy has got a TV show called Be Me Like Puffy. Puffy's an excerpt who works like a man. He's got a set of Gen Ys on the show who are trying to be like him. And he is up at 4.30 in the morning yelling at them, I'm up at 4.30, you can't be sleeping if I'm up at 4.30, get out of bed. He's an excerpt that works like a boomer. Soft skills, we heard that this morning. This is about communication skills, written, uh, written, verbal, uh, and also eye contact, uh, posture, etc. Their favorite form of communication, we said, is what? Texting. 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 So when you're texting, what are you looking at? It's no. a screen. Mm-hmm. Texting is part of screen time, which is why they have poor soft skills. You want to talk to a generation that has exquisite soft skills? Talk to the silent generation, for whom the telephone was in the technology. Much of their communication was done, either written or face to face. Here's the issue with texting. Particularly in Vistage, maybe not this one, because I know who you have in the group, really, Dave, in your group. In a lot of Vistage groups, I get people who say, texting's not a real of communication. Te- texting's not a way to do business. Texting, Texting's going to go away. Here's some data that suggests so otherwise. This is a Nielsen study looking at the second quarter of compared to the second quarter 2010. Blue bars are 09, gold bars 2010. First thing I want to point out, across every age group, we are all texting more.
1: Why do people in this age group text Because people in the other age <laughs> group. Because they want to talk to their children. Exactly. Do an experiment.
2: You have to learn. Sorry. Do an experiment. You have to go over. Call your kids. You'll get voicemail. Text them. You'll get a reply right away. Texting is a preferred form of communication. Now, here's the thing. This is what we need to understand. What we do in business, face-to-face, video conferencing, um, telephone, is called synchronous communication. Synchronous communication is any communication that requires the sender and the receiver to be in place for the message to be sent, understood, and, and received and understood. This is a form of what's referred to as asynchronous communication. Asynchronous communication is any communication that allows people to send a message, and the receiver doesn't have to be in place. It can be received and understood at some later point in time. That's asynchronous. The difference is, this moves mountains. Asynchronous communication changes behaviors in ways synchronous communication does not and has not. It is astonishing to Gen Y that it can take us four days to get four people in a room for a 30-minute meeting. When they, in college, can send a single text to a group of friends, let's meet in the commons in 10 minutes, and 95 of those friends will show up. It's called swarming. We saw the same thing at the last National Democratic Convention, National Republic Convention, swarming of delegates. We saw the same thing in Iran two years ago, Egypt and Tunisia last year. These are all countries, and this is where we get the national, the international flavor for this, these are all countries that have gen Y populations greater than fifty percent. And they all know how to use this technology. The key here is those are revolutions that would not have happened without this technology. And the truth is, particularly in Egypt, the text messages that were sent were complex, were coded, and were nuanced. So, for example, some of the texts being sent in Egypt were intercepted by the government. And the government interpreted them as meaning, let's meet 10 blocks north of Tahrir Square in 10 minutes. So they would send the troops to the north. So what it actually meant, the text actually meant was, let's meet five blocks south in five minutes. Nuanced, complex, coded. My point here is, this is a form of communication that we need to learn and to leverage, along with many others like we were just talking about. They they have ways of communicating that we need to learn how to use. It seems like in our firm, and I could
3: think of seven to ten people that fall into this age category, out of that group, one of them can write very well. Which, that's part of the challenge which is important to us and it's amazing how just somebody writing sentences and it flowing well is like a huge accomplishment
2: I, I would argue that that is not only that's not only that that's, that is a function of the academic system um, as and I, I've seen this particularly with people coming out of MBA programs MBA programs, people do things in teams so if you have a team of three one person's a good researcher one person's a good writer one person's a good presenter well in order for them to do well, guess what? The writer does the writing. The presenter does the presenting. The researcher, so they don't build a minimum threshold of all skills. They maximize their strengths, and that's why, you know, I believe in strength finders and working towards your strength. I think it's important to know your challenges so you can build them to a certain minimal level. But that happened in college. And the first place of the groups, I'm sorry. When did the group tour happen? Higher education. It's news to you? No, so, he said 70s, but I didn't
0: experience.
2: Yeah, um, it, it, I know it's, it, it, I've been experienced for the last 10, 15 years, particularly with people coming out of graduate school.
1: I I to of course, in PR, but right. I've seen studies that, in some ways, the point you were just making about nuanced, and sophisticated communication is happening, into a wonder, it's to change an entire I mean, there, there's been some research done that shows that actually, because of texting and social media, that at least some of the people say the are more sophisticated communicators
2: in some but, ways. And I, and I, I agree with uh, caveat communication is a very broad broad, broad brush. So if you're talking texting, asynchronous, absolutely. The challenges that I see with them is, is the soft skills, the, the face-to-face. That That's the tool, and the challenge there is, Jumping ahead because this question, well, how do we get them to to build those soft skills? And the issue is relationships and cause. If you build a relationship with them and give them a cause and explain how that's going to advance their career and fill and and feed that cause, fulfill that cause that they want, then they'll they'll be more willing to learn. That's the issue. Make sure I don't forget anything else. Attention. Finally, um, attention. This is a generation. Well, first I'm saying, we know, again, from psychology, uh, multitasking yields mediocre performance. We've known this for years and years and years. Multitasking yields mediocre performance. When you want exceptional performance, you need to use what's referred to as single point focused attention. Single point focused attention yields exceptional performance. We've known that for years and years. In the last several years, there have been studies that have come out looking specifically at multimedia multitasking, the type of multitasking that this generation does a great deal of, which involves Television, computer, cell phone, texting, video games—two or more of these—and what what has been found was, at best, it can't be done. At worst, we're interfering with the way that we think. (laughs) Here's what the findings say: the first study out of Harvard and UC San Francisco says, during downtime. Downtime is any time when when we are awake but not focused on a specific task. During downtime our brain is still trying to reconcile disparate facts, meaning trying to make sense of facts that don't make sense to it. The challenge for this generation, they don't get a lot of downtime, it's all screen time. These last two studies are both looking at uh, using functional MRIs, actually all of these are using functional MRIs. Um, Multimedia multitasking out of Stanford, a psychologist named Clifford Nass. What he found was people who multimedia multitask, at at best, like I said it can't be done at worst, we're interfering with the way that we think. Number one, people in multimedia multitask are poor at filtering. Remember the riddle I used this morning? That was a filtering task. People who, who multimedia multitask would have a greater time solving that riddle. Number two, people with multimedia multitask are poor at task switching. Meaning, if I work on task A and I need to switch over to task B, I lose a lot of time in that transition. Number three, people who multi-media multitask are poor at using working, sequencing, or short-term memory. Those are three types of, uh, three terms for the same type of memory: working, sequencing, short-term memory. Which means, if I tell you A leads to B leads to C leads to D, what comes next? You would tell me E comes next. It's next in the sequence. People who multi-media multitask would have difficulty figuring out the sequence, identifying and figuring out what comes next in the sequence. What NASA says is. Through multimedia multitasking we are training our brains to explore rather than exploit and what he means by that is we're training our brain to look for what's newest brightest and shiniest in the room as opposed to use the information that we have or what he refers to as deep thinking so we're training to our brains to explore rather than to think deeply that's the challenge with multimedia multitasking last study at a UMass at Amherst psychologist named Richard Anderson found that when we multimedia multitask we do learn We just learn using a different part of the brain. We're learning using a part of the brain that's called the striatum. The striatum is a part of the brain that learns, but learns within a very narrow range. So for example, muscle memory is one of the striatum. So if you take a great baseball player who swings a bat, you put a golf club in these other hands. Will he be a great golfer necessarily? Why is that? Very different swing, very different muscle memory. That's the striatum. When you learn using single-point focused attention, you learn using a part of the brain that's called a hippocampus. The hippocampus allows for generalization of the information behavior, it allows for deep thinking. There are some Gen Ys who have learned how to use Singapore folks attention. Sean White, Olympic, down a uh, gold medal, freestyle, snowboarder. You watch him at any competition, all day long, quintessential Gen Y, earbuds in, talking to people. Comes time to hit a chair, let's go up, up chair, those puppies come out. He does not do runs with earbuds budget. Single-form folks' would yield exceptional performance. So, with those challenges, why would you hire them? Because of their strengths. I'm going to go through these quickly because I really want to get to the next section. So, information gatherers. They're consummate information gatherers. If you want to find out what a competitor is doing across the country, across the state, across the county, this is the generation you set to seek that information. They will look in places you would not have thought of looking. They will find information you would not think is public. With one caveat, if it's not on the internet, it doesn't exist. (laughs) Fortunately for us, more and more is put on the internet every day. They're going to be more likely to find it. Appreciation and diversity issues. This is the first generation that, because of social media and technology, does not use things like race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, skin color to separate and segregate the way previous generations did. The only thing that's important to this generation is the desire to connect which means their world is very diverse so this plays into blended life specifically in the workforce if your place of work is too homogeneous meaning does not have diversity it will violate their sense of blended life they're less going to be less likely to stay that's one type of diversity but i'm also talking about diversity of thought Diversity of thought means if yours is the type of place where people say and think things like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We've been doing it that way for 20 years. Why change it now? That prohibits diversity of thought. That inhibits diversity of thought. They want to be able to learn, but they want to be able to bring their ideas. If you preclude or prohibit their diversity of thought, again, they're going to be less likely to stay. Team oriented? This is the flip side of uh, perpetually connected to parents, peers, and friends, they, if they're constantly connected to parents, peers, and friends, they will constantly be checking with team members in order to make a decision. So they're very team oriented. They come to us wired for teamwork. Multitaskers? I'm not opposed to all multitasking. Just, not everything we do requires exceptional performance. Except for, uh, except for, we need to understand exceptional performance you only get from single-point focus attention. But for example, if we are making copies at a copier and we get a phone call, chances are we can take that phone call without ruining the copies. If we're cooking a meal we've cooked 100 times before, chances are we can take the call without burning the meal. That's all multitasking. Not everything we do requires exceptional performance. When we want exceptional performance, we need Singapore folks' attention. They come wired to us for multitasking. Cause driven. Cause, I said earlier, meaning, significant, big picture. Cause, or, or purpose. Meaning big big picture, purpose. Cause, I said earlier, we must drive our cause down to even entry-level positions. The challenge here is a lot of organizations consider their cause something they print in black and white, put in a frame, and hang on a wall, and then nobody reads it. What am I talking about? Mission statement. I argue our mission statements are written for either executives or corporate boards, but not employees. So I argue you can rework your mission statement, or you can come up with another cause, which is... Separate from the statement. If you're going to come up with a cause, you're causing to answer these two questions. Again, I repeat them. The questions are how does what you do change the world or change human experience in the world? I don't care if you make widgets. How do the widgets you make change the world and change human experience in the world? So
1: you're saying that it's more important,
2: it's not it for me, it's more important about more altruistic or For the world? Yes. That's what, this is the first generation that's looking globally. His previous generations, and, and the further you go back, previous generations, the community was their church. Then it was their town. Then it might be the city, then the state, then the country. Now it's the planet. Absolutely. So, if when you come up with a cause to articulate your cause, I argue your cause should be articulated in a way that is understandable to a 6th grader, and recitable at gunpoint. <laughs> Which means easy to understand and very memorable. Understandable sixth-grader, recitable at gunpoint. That's, that's how we create cause. How important is cause? Here's a quick video. We multitask
0: and we have a lot of side things that we do. At the same time, I think a lot of people are very idealistic and they're going to college and they're graduating and they're crying in the rooms because they can't find a job that gives them
1: meaning and purpose in life.
2: In college, crying in the rooms because they can't find a job that gives them meaning and purpose. That used to be called midlife crisis. That was a 40-year-old dilemma. They're living with it now. That's how important causes. So, this is your section four. This is what I call your Gen Y magnet section. Before I jump into this section, I would ask if you're taking notes, I would ask you to please write down a three-word question for me. A three-word question. If you're taking anything home, I want you to take a three-word question. The question I'd like you to write down is, innovate or replicate? Question. Innovate or replicate? Question. And there's a reason I'm I'm asking you to write down this question. Albert Einstein said, to do the same thing over and over again and get different results and expect different results is? Insanity. That's Einstein's definition of insanity. If we do the same thing over and over again, we should expect the same result. The data I presented this morning, the fact that we're having a generally we have a revolving door with this generation that lasts a year and a half to two years max, means what we are currently doing is not working. Which means if we want things to work differently, we don't want things to be the same. We want to do things in a way that is. Different, or, I argue, innovative. Here's the issue with innovation. In order to innovate, you must consider two factors. Number one is risk. Number two is failure. First, risk. We all individually and as an organization, we all have a particular risk tolerance. certain amount of risk, amount of risk we're willing to tolerate. Here's a quick way to assess your own. If I worked for you, I'm your employee. Which of these two statements might be true? Oh yeah, that guy Gustavo, I know him. He tried the process six times before he finally got it to work out right. Or, would you be more likely to say something like, Oh yeah, that guy Gustavo, I know him. He tried that process twice, and he's no longer with us. Both describe a different level of first times. Then there's the issue of failure. Nobody likes to fail. We are socialized to avoid failure but the truth is that failure teaches us more than our success success just teaches us to do the same thing over and over again it is failure that teaches us to do something differently so i argue we need to adopt the thomas edison consciousness of failure thomas edison was a prolific inventor one of the many things he invented was the light bulb he was once interviewed by a newspaper reporter about his invention of the light bulb and the reporter said to her, mr edison is it true that in order to invent the light bulb you did more than one thousand experiments edison's response why yes that happens to be true so of course the follow-up question was so mr edison doesn't that mean that in order to invent the light bulb you failed more than a thousand times edison's response not at all That just means that the invention of the light bulb is more than a 1,000 step process. Failure is a step in the process of innovation. You cannot innovate without failure. And the real issue is, culture trumps personality. If you, at this level, are not willing to risk and fail in order to innovate, neither will anyone below you be. You set the culture of risk and failure for your organization. If you're not willing to do it, neither will anyone below you be. So, for this section moving forward, I want you to consider Innovate or Replicate. But more importantly, this is a question I'd actually like you to consider every day. But there's a, a particular time of day, I'd like you to consider it. You know the time of day when? It's early morning. You're lying in bed your eyes are still closed and you're just becoming aware of consciousness the world outside you, you know the time, day, the time of day i'm talking about this is when i'd like you to, to plant the seed of this question i want you to ask yourself today innovate or replicate and i want you to decide what you will do before your feet hit the floor here's why i know that on certain uh on certain days you're going to think today innovate or replicate and you're going to think, oh, I have a crazy schedule. My day is just crazy. I'll be looking to make it through my day. Today's a replicate day. That's fine. Just set your expectations accordingly. I also know that on certain days, you're going to think, today you're ready to replicate. And you're going to think, today's an innovate day. And you're going to hit the ground running, planning to innovate. You're going to get to work. And you will be overwhelmed by brush fire to brush fire to brush fire. I need for you to make that OK. And the only way I know how to do that is for you to be able to look back upon that day and be able to say, okay, today I failed at innovation, but here is a step that I can do differently tomorrow. Whether it's a meeting you had or didn't have, uh, a phone call you took or didn't take, here's a step that I can carry forward and recommit to innovation tomorrow, making today's failure a step in the process of innovation. It's the only way i know how to do it to get you more comfortable with failure so you make failure a step in the process of innovation so i ask yourself to ask yourself this question every day and especially when we go through this section so this section J. Y. magnifactors i said earlier J. Y. one magnifactors the term comes from the fact that while many companies are having a revolving door with this generation every year and a half two years or less Many companies are not. These are, called, gen, these are called Gen Y magnet companies because they're companies that Gen Ys want to work for, and when they get in, they don't leave. They're your usual suspects: Google, Microsoft, Starbucks. But there are some unusual suspects like Liberty Hardware, hardware manufacturing based in North Carolina, REI, Best Buy, Zappos. Um, I'm leaving one out: um, Timberland. These are companies that are across industries and across geographies. So it's not just technology companies in the Northwest part of the country. They're they're companies that are using these five factors. I'm gonna define them for you, then we're gonna break out into groups and do an exercise with that. First factor is time. Time is defined as time outside of work. Time outside of work is what allows for blended life. Traditional companies allow for three buckets of time, vacation, holiday, sick time. Progressive companies are moving to PTO and LWOP. LWOP stands for leave without pay. PTO stands for paid time off. Very simply, this changes the relationship of time off between you and your employees. This communicates to your employees, you're an adult. You don't need to tell us why you take time off. You just need to tell us when you take time off. If you want uh, and if you want data to support what happens here, well, first let me say, the data says. Companies that go from traditional to progressive in general have less time use and much less time abuse. Why is that? Because PTO and LWAP belong to the employee, sickly belongs to the company. And here's a shocker, try not to fall out of your seat for this one. Sometimes when people call in sick, they're not really sick. (laughs) (laughs) The Friday flu, the Monday mucus, yeah, not always real. Again when people have time that's not their own that they have to burn they will access the time where when it's their own they use it more sparingly you want data to support this visit sherm the society of human resource management sherm.org they have a ton of data on their website it all says the same thing less time use much less time abuse. how many people here use pto how do employees like it pay pto but specifically philosophically it's your time You just need to tell us when you're going to take it off.
3: Oh, yeah, that's super real. Black
2: Do you, well, see, and and I understand there's...
3: You can help me straighten (laughs) it out. I don't understand the
1: difference between that and vacation.
2: Okay, the difference is that vacation traditionally is pooled with sick time, so it's different. It's kind of treated like vacation, but it's all in one pool. So it doesn't matter when you use it. You can use it in blocks of two hours, four hours, eight hours. And so it's like everything becomes vacation time. Nearly. So they get 80 hours instead of two weeks. No, you know, let's talk about it. They get hours instead of weeks, yes. But the way that it works is if you have, let's say, traditional, <laughs> three weeks vacation, two weeks sick, you end up, depending on the math equation you use, you'll end up between three and a half and four and a half weeks PTO. It's not completely added. But yes, it's based in hours, you use it in blocks, exactly like that. So it's their time. And they use it when they need to use it we never had an employee take over the fish right it's it's the weirdest place uh, I, I, my guess is you have very you have very good culture. <laughs> other questions on this again uh, show, uh just a couple i just saw a couple hands go this is this is a very strong move. one more point here first of all so point number one with time is you want to move from traditional pto point number two is if you're not getting at least two weeks in the first year and it doesn't have to be PTO, because it can be one week PTO, or ways to earn additional PTO. If you're not giving two weeks, they'll never look at you. You'll never be a genuine man. So it's sort of an
1: either work, either kind of like a holiday or a I guess the
2: holidays are holidays. Okay, holiday specifically. Let me talk. If you're running 24/7, you include holidays in your PTO. If you're not, everyone gets the holiday. You exclude it.
1: Right. That's exactly
2: right. And by the way, nobody ever sick you know? yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's astonishing.
1: Right? they that,
2: that, That's exactly right. They don't burn it. So they use it more sparingly. That's exactly right. So should we be offer Sometimes it's nice, I, I, personally, I, I, it depends on, you. I, again, I always look at industry, but I was tied to performance. So leave without pay can be a performance issue. But generally, if, if it increases flexibility, which is the next factor, to increase flexibility, everyone on the team is going to appreciate it. So this is about understanding what these factors are, then creating initiative and rolling out. So generally, I, I look more towards performance around leave without pay. Other questions? What's uh, Again, it, it's a benefit. She's. I don't think that if you have a poor performer I'm going to be less flexible with a poor performer than I am with a good performer with a good performer I'm going to give them all the leave without pay they want so that's what i by tying into performance I'm not saying specifically to April as in in general a good performer I'm going to give them as much flexibility because I want to keep them What PTO, or I'll, I'll leave, without pay. leave without pay Well, leave without pay. If
3: your work is good enough. You can have. It
2: it's a, it's administered on, on a direct supervisor level. Yeah. Okay. It's administered on a direct supervisor. The direct supervisor is responsible for it by maintaining the team, etc. That that's how it's administered.
3: Yeah, i sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Just
1: no, no, no. Oh. That's so why I'm here.
3: Can you, can you
2: Not everyone will use the PTO, and that the, that the data doesn't support that.
1: We didn't. We didn't the
2: data doesn't support PTO times
3: we would have combined we have 18
1: days for removal, 18 days off and four days for
0: two days, that. That's
2: right. so you can get Question over here. Yeah, guys, I, I hate to break up a conversation, but this is this is tactical stuff, and I, and I want to get to the material because, and, and we can talk about it after. I just want to make sure that we get to the exercise. So, quick question here: in,
3: in a generation where everybody gets a trophy, and then you said leave without pay is discretionary based on someone's performance, is there is there an entitlement that? We're
2: we're going to talk about how you tie performance yeah. to to this.
3: In the, age of the HR people, are already having standards for
2: that. What do you mean HR people have? I don't understand the question.
0: Is
2: it legal to have leave without pay policies based on performance? That, well, okay, I may have misspoken. I'm not saying based on performance. I'm saying, in, in, I think you come up with a leave without pay policy, and it still needs to be approved. So you approve it based on how they are they meeting their goals or not. Have they met their goals, and can their goals be covered? Is exactly. that uh, HR state? Some HR law varies state to state, so I can't make a recommendation for Pennsylvania. Other states where I work, absolutely. Absolutely. Questions on time. Time is time outside of work. Next factor. Flexibility. Factor number one is time. Flexibility is factor number two. Flexibility speaks to time at work. Time is time outside of work. Flexibility is time at work. The first one is explanatory. I want to talk about the fifth bullet. Performance based pay. If you pay me for 40 hours a week, what are you paying me for? Actually, what are you paying me for? 40 hours. You're paying me for a pulse, to have a pulse in your workplace for 40 hours a week. If my performance goes up or down any given week, any given month, any given quarter, does my pay change? No. No, because you're paying me hourly. Performance based pay is different. Performance based pay says here's the range of your salary. And your salary will remain within this range as long as your performance remains within this range. If your performance goes up, by a certain percentage, your salary will reflect a corresponding increase. If your performance goes down by a certain percentage, your performance will reflect a corresponding decrease. That's performance based pay. The challenge for us is we need to take all these jobs that are hourly and make them behaviorally or performance based. But guess what? When you measure and reward the behaviors that lead to profit margin, guess what you get? More profit. That's exactly right. You get more profit. The, the The key here is accountability precedes flexibility. Accountability precedes flexibility, which requires two things: metrics and reward. You need to have the, 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 That that well, that's true. But when you when you're teaching new behavior, the, the the, money does, the the reward, and, and well two things, when you're teaching new behavior, it needs to be rewarded, but you're right, the money doesn't matter, but this is part of, and you'll see why, this is how we attach performance to effort. Part of it's going to be the money, part of it's going to be money. Um, the money. There's one other point I want to make. Uh, the other incentive, if it's not money, what do you think they want? Time. Time, that's exactly right. That's why I said, if you're not giving PTO two weeks in the first year, make it an opportunity to, to earn additional PTO as a, as a possibility let me this last then i'll take questions incentive-based pay i contrast incentive-based pay to bonuses some companies very generous generously at the end of the year will say to their employees they have a pool of money to distribute, so they'll they'll say to the employees merry christmas here's five hundred dollars merry christmas here's a thousand dollars very generous i'm not opposed to bonuses but there's a better way to use those resources and that better way is incentive-based pay because bonuses are at the discretion of management so what often happens is one year you give a bonus and the very next year you may be, you may be getting pressures at your margins and at the end of the year and your employees are very busy but because you've been pressured at your margins there's no money to distribute at the end of the year but because your employees are busy they expect the bonus when they don't get a bonus what happens we got chipped i'm unhappy i'm not working like this next year. It becomes demotivating. Incentive is at the discretion of the employee. First, it gives what I call the illusion of control. It's an illusion because you create the incentive. The way ince- And this can be done weekly, monthly, or quarterly, annually. You roll out the incentive and you say, here are the conditions under which an incentive can be paid. Now, it's your job to meet them. And your job becomes simply to communicate their progress towards the incentive. That's it. The incentive is in their hands the bonus is in yours. Incentive is a much better control of behavior than is bonus. See the difference?
3: Questions on flexibility? Team versus individual or incentive?
2: Great. Depends on, depends on generation. Okay. My experience. So for example, particularly in sales, you take a boomer salesperson, I eat what I kill. Don't, I don't want to share my commission with anyone. You take a Gen Y. They will share commission all day long. So you got to look at the industry, but my experience is very clearly. Um, boomers brought about companies like Lehman, who went under because of this eat-what-I-kill culture. Gen Ys, much more willing to share commission because they work towards their strengths. So if I'm okay at cold calling, then I'll do the cold calls. You go, visit, you go out to visit the client. They'll work as a team. Great question. Look at your people individually, but broad brushstroke, that's what I'm seeing.
1: What's the
2: difference between performance and incentive? Uh, the, the performance is more of a salary base, incentive is on top of the salary. Performance is to take the hourly and convert them to behavioral, incentive is to, in, in addition to. One more point here, I just I just remember. Are, you, remember. are you familiar with the data of what happens to performance if you allow for people to work from home? What happens? you know? Performance goes on with two very important caveats. Number one is metrics. You need to be measuring the behaviors that lead to success. Oops. You need to be measuring the behaviors that lead to success. Number two is reward. Reward like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Reward like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which means you need to be using a reward that's meaningful to your employee. People have said to me in these groups, people say, oh, I've tried that, it doesn't work. All I have to do is scratch the surface a little bit and they violated one or both of these rules. If you allow people to work from home, performance goes up with those two caveats. Important caveats, but you have to have them in place. Questions on flexibility. Factor number one is time. Factor number two is flexibility. Factor number three is personal growth. I'm not going to belabor this too much, but because they're all pretty self-explanatory, in general, this is a generation that wants to learn more. They're going to want to be trained. They're going to accept training. They're going to want to learn from you. This idea-sharing middle bullet means they want to learn from you, but they also want you to learn from them. So this is about two-way communication when it comes to personal growth. So time, flexibility, personal growth. Number three, relationships. This is where we do a deep dive can we beaten that horse about the supervisor? Do we need to continue? The supervisor is the number one reason, number one relationship need to have. We beaten that dead horse going about. Yes. Okay. So, interested in the entire world, we should know one thing about the outside world of every one of our direct reports, not just Genoa. We should know one thing about the outside world of every one of our direct reports, and be able to discuss this with them on a weekly basis. I'm not talking about an hour a week. We're not doing therapy. I'm talking about five to 15 minutes a week. That's it. Just be able and willing to discuss that. Whatever they are interested in. So, for example, I work for you. You're interested in cars. But I'm interested in underwater basket weaving. <laughs> I work for you. What are we going to discuss? Uh, underwater basket weaving. Absolutely. Uh, provide request feedback. That goes back to two-way communication. Being a friend at work. Here, And I said, being a friend is, does not mean you have to go out drinking with them. They'll drink you under the table. This means you have to simply take a personal interest. Here's the example I use. Banks are my example that I use as a conservative culture. Banks generally have very conservative cultures. I've been working for a very conservative bank in the southeast and Atlantic region in the United States called BB&T. They have a very conservative culture within that banking arena. Um, I was working with a rural branch manager who was a very flexible boomer a rural branch branch manager who happened to be a flexible female woman. And she had a gen, female Gen Y teller with whom she was having difficulties. So she came to me and said, You know, Gustav, so I'm having this problem with this Gen Y teller. She's a good employee. I don't want to lose her. But I'm having this problem. What was the problem? Let's just say the teller was coming to work like her boyfriend might like to see her on a Friday night. <laughs> unnecessarily revealing, unnecessarily seductive. Not good in a conservative bank. So I spoke with the branch manager about this, and, and she was going to take this on alone. I wasn't going to be involved, other than consulting role. So she was going to take it on, and we talked about it. So let's get some information. So we asked some contextual questions. Do you like the people you work with? Do you like your boss? Do you see yourself a year from now, here, a year from now? Where would you like to be three years from now? And the teller answered all these questions in the right direction. So where an inflexible boomer might have said, Go home, read the policy, and don't come back till you understand it. Instead, this very flexible boomer said, "I'd like to spend 30 minutes with you today after work." Jen Wyre said, "Sure, okay." And what did they do? They went shopping. I want to be very clear here: the boomer didn't buy her anything. Instead, all she did was say, "This and this would be good after for, this and this would be good after 4 This and this would be good after work. They chose three outfits. And she hasn't had a problem with the out, with the. she hasn't had a problem with the teller since. What do you think that 30 minute investment did for the quality of that relationship? It cemented it. How do you know? The very right next day, the woman received an invitation to Facebook. You can't get a better invitation from a Y. Here's how you really know. This was five years ago. This was one of my first Gen Y cases. This is why I still tell the story. This was five years ago. And the teller is no longer a teller, she's been promoted, but she's in the same branch. In those five years, she's been recruited by other departments in the bank, and she hasn't left. In those five years, she's been recruited by other banks for as much as 20% more pay, and she still hasn't left. And when I've asked her over the last five years at least a dozen times, why wouldn't you take a job for twenty percent more pay at a different bank? What do you think she says to me? "Quote unquote." I'm not leaving this boss. I'm not leaving this boss. You think that's unique? I've done work for a vistage company in Baltimore with a CEO who's a boomer and a CIO, chief information officer, who was a Gen Y, making eighty-five thousand dollars a year. Shortly after our engagement, the CEO engaged me around this stuff, Gen Y stuff. So shortly after our engagement, the CEO comes to me or calls me on a Thursday and says, the CIO told me he's leaving, he's going to work for a friend. I can't afford to lose this guy, what do I do? My response, start your search now. <laughs> if he's going to work for a friend, you don't, you don't have the relationship you thought you had with him, and you're not going to be able to keep him. So the boomer being a boomer, the CEO being a boomer, instead, over the weekend, threw money at the problem. So he offered him from 85 to 95 to 105 to 115 to $125,000. CIO left anyway. What was his friend paying him? $65,000 a year. The point here is, for Gen Y, money is a threshold. What I mean by threshold is they need to make enough in order to live a particular lifestyle. After that, they don't care. Relationships and cause will trump money. Compensation. Relationships and cause will trump compensation. One more, even more extreme. In 2007, I was doing work for a commercial real estate firm in L.A. Now, for those of you that don't know, L.A. is not an easy commercial development commercial real estate development firm, but this CEO had really taken his time and developed a tremendous relationship with this Gen Wire, but the time was 20, 23, 24. This Gen Wire was making money hand over fixed. because he was doing so well. He was doing so well that he was eating the competition's lunch. So the competition, being a true boomer, tried to poach the Gen Wire. Take him out, wine him, dine him, offer, this, offer him this huge comp package, and... A $1 million signing bonus. A million dollar signing bonus. Which he promptly rejected. Now, I'm an early extra on the custom of So, of course, I had to ask why would you turn down a million dollar signing bonus? What did he say? I'm not leaving this boss. The point here is he had already made more than a million dollars. Another million didn't matter to him. The relationship and the cause are what matter to them. Relationships and cause will trump. point here is we will not be able to buy them away from our competitors. We get them in early, we build cultures that keep them, and then we don't have to worry. Questions here? One more point here. Without stepping on Dave's toes, I want to talk a little about social. Have you done your presentation for this group? Okay, so I don't want to spend time on, you've seen this, should I spend time on this, or should I, uh, social media, a little bit, okay. Um, social media, Gen Ys have always been a high user of social media. This is a huge survey, you see here Gen Ys have always been high user. that's the top line, next line down is Gen Xer. I just went the last few of the survey going from 09 to 2010, Gen Xers have gone from 48 to 61%, 61% of Gen Xers are on social media. Uh, that's 25 percent increase in a single year. Uh, boomers, the next line down, third line down, 25 to 47 percent in a single year. That is an 88 percent, 88 percent increase in a single year. Silent, 30 to 26, 100 percent increase, not huge penetration, 100 percent increase. But here's the issue: if you're not using social media, you're missing out on opportunities for business. I don't know how familiar you guys are with. have you guys have Jimmy Dietrich in here? Okay, no, because you. you okay. This is a Ginny Dietrich story, so I cite her when I use the story because it is indeed not her story. Um, Ginny is a Vista speaker for more than 20 years. Now, I've been with Vista. This is my third year of Vista, so I'm considered a relative newbie. But if, if, for those of you that aren't familiar, for those of us that are lucky enough to be busy in consulting, the way that our lives work is that we will fly to a city, rent a car, drive around to a series of presentations or consultations, and then fly home. So during the course of a year, we rent a lot of cars. As I said, Ginny's with Vistage for 20 years, 15 of those years, she was this super ultra presidential car renter with Avis Rent-A-Car. Have you guys heard this story? Okay, just making sure. So, she was a super ultra presidential car renter with Avis Rent-A-Car. And Ginny won, and she had a very well-trained Gen Y admin who helped her plan and schedule her travel. So Ginny one week had a series of presentations in Denver. So her admin called, or oh, I'm sorry, her admin went online, went to his website to book a car for Denver. She couldn't seem to, she didn't seem to find any cars in Denver for that, uh, for that that week. So she very smartly picked up, picked up the phone, called the 1-800 number. Customer service says, my my boss is a super ultra presidential car renter with you. She's been this way for 15 years. Would you guys mind, bring, I can't seem to find a car in Denver for these dates. Would you guys mind bringing a car from from a remote location so she can pick it up and drop it off in Denver? Person at the 1 800 number says, Have your boss take a cab to pick up the car. Not the greatest customer service, but there you have it. So, the Gen Wire, without any intention behind it, gets on Twitter and tweets Can you believe it? Avis is telling my boss to take a cab to pick up a car. Who do you think responded now? Five minutes later? Hertz, because you can track not only what people say about you, you can track what people say about your competitors. Hertz responded and said, we have a car for you on those dates in Denver, and here's a 10% discount coupon for your first rental. And when she called to claim the discount coupon, she explained how many cars her boss rents during the course of a year. And Hertz transferred her to their top tier status immediately. Who do you think she rents from now for the last five years? If you're not using social media, you're missing out on opportunities for business. Next, Facebook. Uh, when Facebook was about a year and a half old, Google tried to buy Facebook. Facebook said, no thanks, we're growing space. Facebook has more than 500 million accounts. Twitter is the only thing that I know in its space. There maybe other things. It's the only thing in its space. It's the largest one, not a lot of competition. How many people here? Have heard you also have heard, LBS? How many people heard LBS used to stand for London Business School. Today it stands for location-based. location-based services, location-based social media. Um, the largest one is for us, but I'm not going to bore you with this, other than to say this is part of the function because I'd rather spend the time in the exercise. Part of the function of location-based social media comes from a function from this generation referred to as peer-to-peer networking. Peer-to-peer means if I have information that I think is important, I want to share that information. Fact is, peer-to-peer networking changes behavior. Here's the example, which means um, Gen Y is your uh, will become your greatest recruiters. Gen Ys don't care who Forbes says Forbes says is the top 100 companies to work for. They care what they fr- what their friends think. So the example of peer-to-peer. In 1999, Microsoft put out the first digital encyclopedia. It was called Encarta. People started jumping up and down. Oh my God! The 800-pound gorilla in the room is going to put out the old, traditional, printed, 32-volume, sold door-to-door Encyclopedia Britannica. Both coexisted for the next 10 years, side by side, until 2009. In 2009, Microsoft no longer put out the Encarta, and we put out Encarta and Encyclopedia Britannica, folded into two different companies. What came out in 2009? Wikipedia, Wikipedia peer-to-peer information sharing. You think that's unique? Ask Zagat's Restaurant Surveys what they think of Yelp and Urban Spoon. Two apps for Droid and, and iPhone that allow you to go to restaurants and rate those restaurants. Ask, Trip, uh, ask um, Magazine, Travel Magazine what they think of TripAdvisor.com. Have you ever bought anything on eBay or Amazon? Do you read reviews on sellers or products? Peer-to-peer information show. All part, All brought to us by this generation. Final cause. Cause is meaning, significance, big picture. Purpose. I said earlier, driving cause down to entry-level positions. I said earlier, cause must be something that answers these questions. How does what you do change the world or change human experience in the world? This is a challenge for a lot of organizations. I've been work, excuse me, I've done work for a rebar manufacturer in North Carolina. For those of you that don't know, Rebar is the metal that goes into reinforced concrete, not very sexy, not a huge Gen Y driver. They brought me in again around Gen Y issues, so we looked at they had a lot of cultural issues, and the reason they brought me in, this was a company, manufacturing, that had two employees in their 70s, a handful in their 60s, a handful in their 60s, two employees in their 40s, and that was it. Sound familiar? They were they were dying really for debt desperate for younger employees so they brought me in around this stuff this uh these gen y stuff and we went through time flexibility personal growth relationships when we got the cause like how do we come up with cause for a rebar manufacturer? as i said earlier i don't care If you make widgets, I care how your widgets change the world or change human experience in the world. So what we did is we went back for the prior 24 months and we looked at where had their rebar gone. And we found out that some of their rebar had actually gone to the new Yankee Stadium in New York. Where Yankee Stadium is a place where people go to celebrate, enjoy each other's company and celebrate their sports teams. But it's a place where people come together. Some of the rebar had gone through some very beautiful architectural bridges, which are beautiful to look at, and bridges span distances, which bring people together. So their cause became, we build the things that bring people together. That's their cause as a rebar manufacturer. How do they illustrate that cause? on their website they now have pictures of all the things that the rebar has gone to and for every new project that comes in they have sketches that go up in the break room which is where they, their employees hang out sketches that go that go up in the break room of what the final product is going to look like what's the result in the last 18 months they've been able to hire eight gen y's none of which have left so far cause we've had a similar and and by this by the way actually well, I'll say that that one for for a, a little bit. Um, so here you have the top five time or the five factors: time, flexibility, personal growth, relationships, and cause. Let me say it now because otherwise I'll forget. It, every five to ten years, there's a business book that becomes big. The last one was Good to Great, written by Jim Collins. The current yeah, the current one is called Drive by Daniel Pink. Drive D-R-I-D-E by pink as in the color of Daniel Pink. Dry looks at the history and research behind human motivation. And he basically breaks down human motivation to three factors, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy, mastery, purpose. If you look at these factors that I identify for you, they overlap. This is called validity. Time and flexibility are all about autonomy. How can I define time outside of work and time out of work in an autonomous way? Growth and relationships are all about mastery. How can I master my the growth of my skills and the relationship I have with people around me? Cause is purpose. Autonomy, mastery, purpose. This is convergibility. When you have different sources pointing in the same direction, that defines convertibility. It says you're applying, you're approaching truth. So what I'd like to do now is break up into groups and do an exercise. Let's do groups of three. So let's go you three, you three. Three, and you over here.
1: It. Okay, so three. So three
2: one, group two, group three, group, okay, So here's the exercise. Now, I'm gonna give you three questions and then I'm gonna tell you how I'd like you to uh, you are all going to answer these questions for yourself. Let's keep in mind, this is your organizational section. So I want you to answer these questions at, for your organization. Question number one Of these five factors, which one of these factors is your strength? Which one of these five factors is your strength as an organization? What I mean, what I mean by strength is which one of these factors are you either A, already using? Or B, would it be easy for you to implement given your current culture? That's very really much strength. You're either using it or it, leaving implement given your current culture. That's question number one, which is your strength. Question number two. Which one of these five factors is your challenge? Which is your challenge? By challenge I mean which one of these five factors is far away from your current culture? Which one of these five factors would be difficult for you to implement? Your culture. Question number three: What can you do in the next thirty days? What can you do in the next thirty days to begin to overcome your challenge? I want to be clear: I'm not asking you to solve your challenge in thirty days. I'm asking you to take a concrete step to begin to overcome your challenge. So, because you guys are con- uh, you guys are strategic thinkers, you wouldn't be in this room if you weren't. Depending on time, I would like to ask one or two of you to debrief of your challenge so I can help shape your 30-day step, and then I'll just do a quick run-through, if you, uh, a kind of broad brush run-through of your challenges at all five. I want to make sure everyone has a concrete step to be here with. Now, the idea here, one of the advantages of being in a VISTA group is you know each other. And knowing each other, I want you to challenge your, your team members' response. So, for example, if I'm in your group... And I say, well, you know, one of my strengths is, is relationships. I want you to be able to say to me, you know, for, what, for the conversations we've had, I think relationships are really more a challenge. You know, I think time is really a It's called reality testing. I want you to be able to challenge each other. and make, So, confirm that your perception of your organization is accurate with the people in your group. That's what I'm asking you before you, before you get Questions. Yeah, Thank you. Let me make that point too. Great point, and I'd I, I like to make it. These five factors. I'm talking about creating cultural shift. These five factors are not. While they are Gen Y magnet factors they work for everybody. So, for example, if you go to a, a Boomer today and say to them, "I'd like to give you a little bit more flexibility in your schedule," what are they going to say? Oh, don't give me any of that. <laughs> of course not. These factors work for everybody. The rollout is important, but they are factors that work for me. Thank you for helping me make that point. Other questions? Seven minutes. Go. Your personal conversation to a close, and please bring your attention back to the front of the room. So I would like to just debrief one or two of you, depending on the time it takes, um, for strength, challenge, and 30-day step. So we'd like to volunteer. Please, can I volunteer you or no? Please. I think one of our strengths is that you to pull
0: it out. The easy thing is to grow. Um, again, within our business and our industry, it's very easy to offer. And level well, person is like, the sky's the limit.
2: Very good.
0: Um, you make,
3: you
2: know, very good. So, opportunity for growth? Absolutely. Challenge?
0: Challenge really is the time factor.
2: Um, Meaning, time off. Now.
0: The flexibility
2: and time Now, now uh, here's where I want to be clear on definition. Time is time outside of work. Flexibility is time at work. So which of the two? The time. I'm sorry? On. The time outside of work. Okay. So meaning you don't give, uh, are you using PTO or are you using uh, holiday sick? So you're using tradition. Okay. So that clearly is a challenge. So what's a, uh, what's a 30-day step for you? I'm sorry. What would be a 30-day step for you? I After- I mean again we need to schedule Okay. First let me ask, how many people are in your organization in this room? Three. 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 Okay, so you? Okay, so one one is, it's Henry, Art Art, 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 Art. And, Leslie. and Leslie. Okay. So do you first of all, do you agree that growth is a strength? Yes, Do you agree that time is a challenge? Yes. No. <laughs> Okay, so there, I appreciate the honesty. Okay, so um, you two agree time is a challenge, and you see time as not a challenge. Okay. Um, Time's not, you don't see it as a challenge. Do you have a different challenge, or you just don't Cause. is a challenge. Okay, so cause is a bigger challenge. Um, so there may be, do you, if cause is a bigger challenge, you still see time as a challenge? As
1: an opportunity to, to consider, but I, we do have uh, time, we do have the leave without pay program in place. Uh, We do have
2: time where they can take vacation off, so I'm not sure that we require more discussion as to what they're thinking. Right, right. So clearly, so a 30-day step, if you think time is a 30-day step, I would suggest that it may be required discussion with all the the important parties, the decision makers, around A, do you want to move to PTO, because I'm suggesting PTO is the way to go, and B, do you give at least two weeks in the first year? Both are key to becoming Gen Y management. The other five, that's if time is your first challenge. So I would suggest the 30-day step for time is having a meeting with the relevant people in the next 30 days, and they may be in the room, you may need other people in the room, to determine, are you, giving, are you using PTO or not? Are you giving two weeks off in the first year or not? And then, if, once you answer those questions, how do we get there? That's more than 30 days. But clearly defining it in 30 days and then um, discussing how, how, a strategy to move in that direction. That would be beyond 30 days. Is that helpful? Yes, sir.
3: Okay. What does PTO usage end up looking like and then how do you apply it in the small two-person service industry where you
2: can job? I'm going to just take tomorrow
3: afternoon off and use three hours, but that would
1: be dis- extremely disruptive.
2: When you have calls, if they don't disrupt. They won't disrupt the cause. They will, in other words. So, in other words, if it's meaning, if it's a service industry where they have to be there, they're going to schedule things. What I they're going to schedule around the need for the cause. They will sacrifice their needs for the needs of the cause. That's the key. That's why key. That's why cause. So, for example, I've done work with a group of 25 Gen wires. They don't belong to the same company. This was 25 in Lake George. Now, Lake George, for those who don't know, is a little bit like Pennsylvania, with the exception that it's colder. And there could be snow on the ground 10 months out of the year. Nine months out of the year. But this group of 25 Gen came out of a graduating high school class of 50. they fifty uh, fifty. So 50% of the graduating class. They decided we are going to be free from fossil fuels. We are going to be free from fossil fuels. That's their cause. As a group, that's just, just what they decided. So what they decided was any distance that's 10 miles or less, we're going to use our bicycles. Well, guess what? There aren't a lot of distances up in Lake Georgia, less than 10 miles. So when they have to drive, they'll use their cars. But what do they do? They decided they're going to titrate their own fuel. They make their own fuel. That is not cheap. That is not easy. That is not convenient. But they're willing to do it because of cost. When you give cause, and this is, this is why the team, they work so well in teams. When you give cause, and leave without pay, they're not going to leave somebody hanging. They're going to make sure somebody's going to cover for them and make sure that they will cover somebody else at some point in the future.
1: So that creates a question of the, how much of the cause needs to be like theirs or
3: originally
2: in front of them? Uh, I think that they're looking for cause, and when you give them something they can slot into, they'll, they'll fill it. Like it was uh, Paul, you said your person left to go to the Peace Corps. I get that a lot. I get that a lot. I see that a lot with this generation. NGOs, non government organizations, have had a spike in membership because of this generation.
1: Seems like an important point though,
3: people around You still to deal with
2: Absolutely. It's not even more. Yeah. No, from my perspective, it's how do you how do you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. So I'm just trying to give you a 30-day step to start that process. But you're absolutely right. These all have to be in balance. You can't sacrifice one for another. That won't work. They all have to be in balance. So let's do one more. One more volunteer, and then I'll, I'll go down the list. Strength. I think our strength. First of all,
1: these you guys are grow but we so provide very And Joe, when I went into the exercise so I was speaking with my strength, I was around the pause. paused. Okay, I and I'm kind of a strategic guy that has a particular kind of deal And I explained to you that you're going to describe
0: the data that you throw
1: about it. Because they're the a sort of corporate government.
2: The question is, how do you articulate it? Is it understandable to a sixth, sixth yeah. grader? Yeah. Understandable that point. So, if causes your challenge, what is your 30 day step? What i to tomorrow. That is the ideal, and I know I have to give people that, and you know I applaud you for, really, because that is the key. The issue to cause, if causes your challenge, and this is for everyone, speaking more broadly, if causes your challenge, here's the illustration. If I were coming here or to your office in the morning, one morning, and I called you and asked, and, and, and I called you and said, hey, I'm lost, how do I get to you? What's the first question you'd ask me, B? Where are you? The only way to build a cause is to know where you are. So step number one is always going to be, you've got to go to your employees first. That's the 30-day step for cause. You need to go to your employees and ask them, what do you see our cause as being? Because you may think it's over here, and they think it's way over here, which means there's a lot of discussion that needs to take place. If it's closer, there's less. But the fact is that people will protect what they help develop and feel they own. Going to your employees makes it their own. Then they will protect the cause. Buy it. So brilliant step. I applaud you for taking it. Without any type of solicitation, that's exactly it. If your challenge is cost, your 30-day step is talk to your employees. That's your 30-day step. Then you, beyond that, you begin to define cost. That's what I'm talking about, technical stuff. So let me do a quick rundown. We said time earlier. Time is very clear. You're either using PTO or not. You're either giving two weeks or not. If not, your 30-day step is to get with the people who can make those decisions. You need to move in that direction. Flexibility. I said earlier, accountability precedes flexibility. I, I heard. I was walking around. I heard a discussion. Does anyone here run 24-7? Nobody running 24-7 shop? Okay. Well, if anyone, I'd agree. If, I, this is a mechanism, the system that I've used with hospitals. And this is the key point around flexibility. Accountability, precedes flexibility. In order to create flexibility, your 30-day step, here too needs to be, because what I get a lot from CEOs is, oh, this is the type of flexibility I want to implement. My response? So what? What do your employees want? So step number one for flexibility is, you go to your employees and you ask them, What type of flexibility would you like in your work schedule? That's your 30-day step. What type of flexibility would you like to see in your work schedule? That's the 30-day step. Beyond 30 days, step number two. Once you have that information, you go to a group of high performers and you say to them, we have learned that you as a group would like this type of flexibility. What we would like you to do is we would like you to come up with a system, a a scheduling system, as, as it were, That of flexibility that will, this is where we're currently performing, that will keep performance here or improve it. Accountability precedes flexibility. So you agree on the metrics and you say, here's where we're performing, we want to give you flexibility, we want you, you're not coming up with the system, they are, you to come up with a system that that will increase or improve, keep performance the same or improve. That's step two. Step three. Once they bring you that system, you review it. Then you go to another set of high, high performers and you say, we've been told that this is the type of flexibility that you want. We had this group of people come up with this, this plan. We'd like you to test it as a group. 30 days or not, 60 days, whatever it is. So you go to this group of people and you say, we are calling you a, a tiger team, experimental team, a pilot study, whatever it is and you give it to this group of high high performers to test the system, you think they're going to feel pressure to perform? What do you think? Absolutely, but it's the right pressure because it's coming from their peers, not from you. Step number three is they test it, and during that period of time, you allow them to nip, tuck, or tweak the system in any way they have to in order to be successful. Once they've proven that it works, step number four you roll it out to everybody you're testing it along the way you're just not doing it haphazardly and we'll look it out to everyone see how that works four steps flexibility growth here is personal growth think corporate lattice most organizations they have a strategy they want to move one direction what they don't realize is that corporate lattice needs to be informed by the d- the desires of your employees so the 30-day question thing you need to do in 30 days if you want to promote personal growth for your employees is you need to go to your employees and ask them what are the skills you want to learn in the next 12 months not position not title not pay what are the skills or skill sets you would like to learn in the next 12 months because what you'll find and i've seen this happen companies want to move in this direction and employees want to move in this direction and that's what builds the lattice and what i found is that some companies find an entirely new reven- revenue stream by developing their 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 current employee skill sets that's corporate lattice 30 day step. Relationships. I said earlier we should know one thing about the outside world of every one of our direct reports. So, anyone have a challenge with relationships here? Okay, anyone have a challenge? It's a challenge area for anyone. Okay, so I'll, I'll go into it. I just, if it wasn't, I was gonna say that. Okay, so if you challenge challenging relationships, then this is something you may all want to consider. Here's my suggestion. This is longer than a 30-day step, but I want to lay it out for you. For the next six to eight weeks, I want you to go to your direct reports, Lee, to your direct reports, and I want you to talk to them about something that they are interested in. So begin having discussion on a weekly basis, five to 15 minutes, something that they're interested in. At the end of that six to eight weeks, I want you to go to them and say, have you noticed anything different over the past couple of months? Is anything different between us? Chances are they'll say yes. But even if they say no, you can say, well, the last six to eight weeks I've learned this, I've learned this, I've learned this, I've learned this. So you rattle off all the things you've learned with your personal discussion. To which they'll say, yeah, I guess that is different. Then, that's step one. Then step two is then you say to them, now I want you to go do the same thing with your direct reports. First, you model the behavior then you you ask for the same behavior. And the key piece here is you close the loop. Closing the loop means you touch base and you say to them, when you tell them, I want you to do the same thing with your direct reports, you let them know. I'm gonna check back with you in two months and find out what you've learned. That's the key piece. Because if you don't do that, this becomes what, as a consultant I hear a lot, flavor of the month. Meaning, it's whatever initiative you're, you're working on right now, and nothing ever sticks. This type of cultural shift you need to plan on taking no less than 12 months, no less than a year. So in the year, I want you—I would suggest you mark your calendar every other month, and every other month you're going to your employees and saying, "What have you learned this couple of months? What have you learned this couple of months?" That's how you—that's how you create a cultural shift. Makes sense? Helpful? Cause? cause we just talked it was, it was the first one we did. Go to your employees, ask them what the cause is first. That's the 30-day step. Does everyone have a 30-day step that they can begin to use tomorrow? Does anyone need help in defining more clearly that 30-day step? Part of my goal, that's the takeaway here. I want to make sure everyone has that 30-day step. Everyone has one?
0: Your timeline was
3: similar to flexibility in terms of...
2: Yes. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm the not... fix for time is similar to the fix for
3: flexibility.
2: No, the fix for flexibility is similar for cost. And what's the fix for time? The time is looking at uh, two weeks. Are you giving two weeks off in the first year? Are you, giving, uh, are you using PTO? And if not, get with the people who can make that decision to move in that direction. That's the fix for time. Thank you for clarifying. Any other questions like that? We all have our 30-day steps. Great. Last section. That was your organizational section. This is your individual section. Things you can do individually to build better relationships with this generation. I call this your to-be list because Gandhi said, we must be the change we want to see in the world. We must be the change we want to see in the world. This is not a to-do list because a to-do list lends itself to be a checklist. Got it, got it, got it, got it. This is not that these are things we must do repeatedly in order to build relationships with this generation. Uh, so, first, be interested. Very quickly and easily, this is about showing single-point focused attention. Which means, if you're talking to somebody, you're having a conversation with somebody in your office, and the phone rings, what ought you do? Ignore it. Let it go to voicemail. That's what voicemail is for. They won't do it for us. They haven't been taught how. We need to do it for them first be clear we've talked a lot about meaning meaning is all about cause inclusiveness there's one thing we can do it's not too long it's cost 10 to 15 dollars per new employee for every new employee as we walk into their desk office or cubicle we can have a box of pre-printed business cards with their names already on them on sitting on their desk waiting for them that box of business cards creates a bridge of communication it allows us to say welcome aboard you are not part of us as we are part of you i'd like to talk to you specifically about what you can expect of us and what we expect of you. Create a breach of that communication. And who do you think the first person that will give their business card to is? Their, their mother, who will probably pick them up in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> be transparent. I also call it be transparent, I also refer to it as conspicuous thinking. If we are and this, by the way, is the solution for the lack of independent thinking. If we are ever going to expect them to learn how we make decisions, we need to make our thinking more conspicuous. What that looks like is like like this. When we're going to make a decision, we need to be able to say to them, in order to make this decision, I took your input, and I look at these variables over here. And together, I put them together to create factor A, and I weighted factor A 30%. Then I look at all these variables over here, and I made factor B, and factor B I weighted 50%. Then I looked at these factors over here, and I created factor C. Factor C I weighted 30%, 20%. Given these factors, given the factor weights, given the variables involved, we decided to move in this direction. Any questions? That's conspicuous thinking. The challenge here is a lot of boomers want to shoot from the hip. This doesn't allow for that. But the fact is that conspicuous thinking not only makes us better thinkers, it makes us better leaders. Because people are always much more willing to follow decisions they understand than those that they do not. Be aligned. Aligned is being is golden rule versus platinum rule. What is the golden rule? As do unto others you would have done to you. The golden rule does not work for communication because yo yo hablo en español, ¿cuántas gente me entiende? Una. Okay, that's so good. I said if I speak in Spanish, how many people understand me? The golden rule doesn't work for communication because. I, I told you I was born in Argentina. My first language is indeed Spanish. If my preferred language is Spanish, the golden rule will say, do unto others, as you would have to do unto you. If, I, if my preferred language is Spanish, I'm going to give this presentation in Spanish. And you all probably left in less than 30 seconds yelling and think, why would you bring in this guy? <laughs> you are an English speaking The platinum rule says, do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. Do unto others as they would have done it themselves. You are an English speaking audience, so I give this presentation in English. Does it work in the real world? You go into any restaurant in Pittsburgh, anywhere, just about anywhere in the country, but particularly Pittsburgh, you go into the back, in the kitchen, there will be an entry level position which is likely to be the dishwasher. That dishwasher is likely to speak one language and one language only, that language is likely to be. Spanish, absolutely. Somewhere above that Spanish-speaking dishwasher, there will be an American, who, if you observe, will be speaking to the dishwasher in terms like, lava esto, traigame esto, ayúdame con esto. What language <laughs> is he or she speaking? Spanish. Spanglish or business Spanish, absolutely. The point here is, they don't become bilingual, but they learn enough of the native language to make sure that the supervisee is understanding the instructions in their native language what's the native language what's alignment with gen y time flexibility personal growth relationships and cause we need to be able to put the behaviors we are asking of them into those terms those terms are what will get us the behaviors we want that is alignment be rewarded to be very clear there is no way we will ever be able to reward them as much as their parents have (laughs) Fortunately for us, we don't have to. We just need to understand the process that they experience, which is the withdrawal reward. Here's the example. We are accustomed to going up to a a drink machine, putting in money, hitting a button, getting a drink. Money, button, drink. Money, button, drink. Money, button, drink. That's our conditioning. What happens when we put in money, hit a button, and nothing comes out? What happens? You bang on the machine. That happens second, actually. We get emotional. It's called emotional behavior. Mind, eye here. The very first time you walk to the machine, you put in money, hit the button, one time nothing comes out, what's the very next nice thing you do? Push the button again. That's old behavior. There's a pattern here we need to learn. The pattern is old behavior, hit the button again, followed by emotional behavior. Some people kick, punch the machine, followed by new behavior. <coughs> old, emotional, new. New behavior is hitting a change machine, hitting a different button, get on a thirst, thirst, satisfied somewhere else. Here's what happens to Gen Y. Gen Y is accustomed to being at home. And with their mom and dad, they have to little the song and dance. And mom and dad go, you're awesome. <laughs> so they come to work for us, and they do their song and dance for us. And we go, all right, that's not very rewarding. So first, you get old behavior again, the song and dance again. And then we go, all right, still not very rewarding. So then you get emotional behavior. Remember, low frustration tolerance? They don't deal well with emotional behavior. This is why relationships are so important. This is when we leverage our relationship to get them past the emotional behavior. Smart companies, REI, Zappos, and Best Buy are notorious for this. They front load relationships. How do you front load relationships in business? Every onboarding process begins with team building. When you do team building up front, and they do it for two to three days, when you do team building up front, you are tying them not only to their supervisor, but you're tying them to each other, which makes it much more difficult for them to leave. So when you front load relationships, you team build up front, it ties them to each other and their bosses. Then, when you get the past emotional behavior, it's about catching them doing something right. This means... Important phrase: praising behavior in the direction of the goal. I get boomers to say they have mental. Why should I praise them for anything? That's how people learn. We praise behavior in the direction of the goal. Here's the example: you take a 10 to 12 month old baby just learning how to walk. They take their very first step and they fall down. What do we do? Pick them up and? Yay! Right? They take their first and the second step. They fall down. What do we do? Yay! Right? They're teenagers and walking across the room. What do we do? <laughs> Applaud when they're leaving. <laughs> here's the issue a baby who's just learning how to walk every step is literally a step in the direction of the goal of walking well before they're teenagers well before they're even two years old they learn it's a lot easier for me to get from here to there by walking than is by crawling. so the behavior becomes what's called automatically or naturalistically reinforced the behavior reinforces itself so even by two, we are no longer applauding steps or walking because they're doing it naturalistically. I'm suggesting we need to take the same approach with this generation. We need to praise behavior in the direction of the goal until the goal is met routinely, the behavior becomes automatically enforceable. Make sense? Praise behavior in the direction of the goal. Finally, be determined. Be determined means understand Change is inevitable. Struggle is optional. Change is inevitable. Struggle is optional. This is a change that is upon us. We can choose to to embrace it or struggle against it. It Be determined means. Understand there is no escaping our demographics. 84 million boomers followed by 68 million gen, Gen Xers followed by 79 million Gen Ys. Understand that Technology, particularly around communication, needs to be viewed from the perspective of those who use it most effectively. So one of the biggest complaints I hear from this generation, about this generation, is, you know, there is this huge chasm between us and the workforce and Gen Y. We're standing on one side, they're standing on the other, and I'm willing to build a bridge halfway, but they're gonna have to build a bridge the rest of the way and meet us in the middle. To which I always say, you're gonna be waiting a really long time. Mm because they may have the materials at their feet and the tools in their hands, but they haven't been taught how to use them. So I argue it is incumbent upon us to build this bridge all the way across this chasm to meet them where they are. Meeting them where they are means acknowledge their strengths, acknowledge their challenges, find ways to overcome, to use both, and walk them back all the way across this bridge we have just built all the while teaching them our cause, building their relationship with them, and teaching them how things work on this side of the chasm. That's how we succeed with this generation. Two more words on innovate or replicate. Baby carrots. We <laughs> put our baby carrots anywhere. Are they carrots ripped out of their mother's arms? Of course they're not. Before 1991, there was no such thing as baby carrots. Before 1991, baby carrots used to be called trash, or broken carrot bits, or animal feed. Then, in 1991, a then small, now very large, farming company called Bolt House Farms said, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we take a larger one of these broken carrot bits and mill them down to look like baby carrots. And today, baby carrots are more than a one billion, with a B, dollar industry. Innovate or replicate. What you do is up to you. Thank you. Questions, comments, criticisms, complaints, concerns, consternations? Questions? No questions?
1: Okay, um, thank you, Gasai. Thank
2: you, thank you. Do you guys do Rapid Recall now or later? We're going to do it now. Okay, great, thanks. All right, uh, on you.
1: It
3: is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?